Greetings all, Vanessa Cardi here, welcoming you back to Right on Prime for our February 2023 edition. As we do from time to time this month, we are mixing up the co-host responsibilities, so it is my pleasure to welcome Penny Wilson to the co-host seat. Penny is, of course, a frequent contributor and is our awesome in-house GP OBS specialist and is now the assistant editor in charge of The Generalist. But this is her first time joining us on the intro and summary fun, so welcome, Penny. Thanks, Vanessa. It's great to be here at the top of the show. Nice view from here. (laughs) Awesome. Well, as per usual, I want to kick off this month with a case. Nothing too crazy, but good bread and butter family medicine. I had a 49-year-old lady who told the secretary that she wanted to see me because of a skin problem. Now, I hadn't seen her for a few years as she had moved away for a while, but when I walked into the exam room, I saw right away what she was talking about. Yeah, nice. That's definitely the benefit of dermatology sometimes. You can make the spot diagnosis before you've even said hello. None of this searching for stigmata of chronic disease that we have to do with internal systems. So what was it that you saw that gave away the diagnosis? I saw a lady in her late 40s who was mildly obese and who appeared quite flushed. She had acne-like spots scattered over her cheeks and her nose was quite red and bulbous in appearance. Her facial skin seemed to have thickened since I last saw her and she had patches of very dry skin where her skin was actually kind of flaking off but it also seemed that she was a bit sweaty. Now, even without having seen her yourself, do you want to hazard a guess as to what she had? Well, I guess it's possible that it could be acne or rosacea, but given that this is a new issue for her and her age, I'm going to go with rosacea. Wise choice, Penny. Very wise choice. She did indeed have rosacea. And your prize for correctly diagnosing her is to give the listeners a brief description of rosacea itself. Wow! Oh, fantastic. What an (laughs) honour. I will try my best. So, rosacea is pretty common and it tends to affect folks older than 30, with females getting it more frequently than males. It most commonly affects the facial skin. But Vanessa, do you know what other body part can also be affected? Okay, now it's my turn to be put on the spot. Um, Okay, this wasn't supposed to go this way, but I'm going to see if I can hazard a guess. I'm thinking you're talking about the eyes? Yes, bang on, you got it. Before we carry on, though, I did want to highlight a few things about this eye issue with rosacea. If you see a patient who has rosacea, be sure to check their eyes and eyelids to look for signs of ocular involvement. But you need to be aware that these ocular signs can sometimes occur without the common skin symptoms as well. So don't get fooled. If a patient just presents with eye problems, think about rosacea. And those presenting symptoms for ocular rosacea are maddeningly nonspecific. Things like itching, tearing, foreign body sensation all sound very common, right? And in terms of signs, be on the lookout for telangiectasias along the eyelid margins, look for redness of the conjunctiva, and for signs of blepharitis. There can also be chalasians, mebomian gland inflammation, and even corneal ulcers, so you don't want to miss this. Now, perhaps none of those, except possibly the corneal ulcers, sound that alarming, but you want to refer anyone with ocular rosacea along to ophthalmology because they are at risk of future complications. And while you're waiting for optho, you can certainly have the patient try warm compresses and even topical metronidazole or erythromycin, but ideally, ophthalmology is going to see them pretty quickly and dictate any treatments beyond that. Okay, so now let's get back to those common skin issues. Now, patients are usually going to say that they have noticed gradual changes in their skin over time, and they complain of sort of pimples and pustules and a general redness to the skin, particularly in the central part of their face. Of course, don't forget that with patients with darker skin colors, it can be very hard to appreciate this redness. So be sure to examine patients carefully and not brush off their concerns if they are bringing this to your attention. 
Sometimes the skin changes will be found near the ears or on the neck as well, and sometimes even on the chest. So make sure you do a really good thorough physical exam. Now, are there any other key features that you need to look out for? You've covered most of them there, except for another couple that I can think of. So the patient might have telangiectasias, particularly on the cheeks, and they can develop what are known as phimatous changes. Okay, what on earth are phimatous changes? That's the name for the process of tissue hypertrophy that can occur in people with rosacea. They get hypertrophied areas with irregular shapes, which can lead to significant disfigurement. Think of the classic image of a patient with rosacea and a red and bulbous nose. That thickened skin on the nose is what I'm talking about. All right, do we have any idea what causes rosacea? It feels like it should be autoimmune, am I right? Yeah, it does feel like it should be autoimmune, but we don't actually know 100% yet what causes rosacea. According to a recent article in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology, it does seem that both innate and adaptive immune activation are likely culprits, along with other factors like neurocutaneous and possibly genetic mechanisms. But again, the causes aren't 100% known. Now, there's also some interplay with bacteria in all of this as well. It seems that certain bacteria kind of set off this immune cascade, which when you think of some of the treatments we use for rosacea makes sense because there's certainly been some efficacy with antibiotics in treating rosacea. That's a nice little segue there into treatment options for patients. Treatment. So what should we be telling our patients when it comes to therapies? Well, like with almost everything, there are certain lifestyle modifications that patients can do to start off with to help with their rosacea. We generally want them to avoid getting flushed, so work with them on ways to skip certain triggers like alcohol, spicy foods, direct sun exposure, and stress. To help them do this, we can pull out another classic family medicine trick, the symptom diary. Different patients are going to have different triggers for their rosacea, and their triggers can cause reactions of varying intensities. So it's really helpful to get them to document all of this. Now, generally, this won't be enough to get rosacea to calm down enough on its own. So encouraging good moisturization of the skin, sun avoidance, and gentle skin cleansing also seem to help. But if that doesn't help, do we just bring out the metronidazole gel and with a slather or two, then it's done? Uh Uh-huh, well, it's not actually so easy anymore. Yeah, of course it isn't. That would be far too simple, eh? The more we learn about a disease, of course, the therapies are going to get more and more complicated. So what are we looking at these days in terms of pharmacological options? Well, Vanessa, that kind of depends on what type of rosacea symptoms the patient is having and to what degree those symptoms are happening. So for folks that have the dry, sensitive skin and flushing, there is the option of laser or pulsed light therapies. And these seem to work best for those who have telangiectasias with their rosacea. And there's also topical therapies, the most effective of which seems to be brimonidine. Topical brimonidine is a vasoconstrictive agent, and it has been shown to be effective in decreasing the erythematous-type changes of rosacea, while not doing so much for those who have more acne-like lesions. Well, it's great to know that this option is out there, even if it isn't for all comers. So speaking of those rosacea patients who have more of the pustules and papules rather than the purely flushing and flaking, what should be our first-line therapies for that group? This is where the old faithful topical metronidazole and topical ibamectin come into play as well as azelaic acid. Azelaic acid seems to be about equally effective as topical metronidazole, but interestingly, topical ivermectin wins out over metronidazole for the mild to moderate pustular lesions. And if the patient's rosacea isn't responding to these therapies, or if they've already had pretty bad, as in moderate to severe pustular rosacea, then you're probably going to want to go with some oral antibiotics like minocycline or doxycycline. These tend to be given at higher doses for about eight or so weeks, 
And then you can continue at what they call sub-antimicrobial doses for often months at a time. It's often like half the regular daily dose is what we end up giving. Check with your local protocols to get the exact dosing depending on the different meds that you're choosing. And don't forget that patients with moderate to severe pustular disease still need the advice regarding trigger avoidance and skin care, as well as some topical therapy to continue. And what if things still aren't improving? Do we add in more oral meds or creams or some combination? At this point, I will usually call dermatology because once I get into the realm of mixing bromonidine and antibiotics or other combinations, I want their go-ahead. Similarly, for more severe cases, there can be treatment with immunologics or isotretinoin, but again, I'm calling a friend in that situation. Great overview of the common issue, Vanessa. Uh, Do you have any closing thoughts on the topic? Well, being aware of the newer therapies is key, so you aren't telling your patients to give up hope if a cream and some antibiotics do not work right away. Remember that on fair skin people, rosacea can be very easy to spot, but on darker skin folks, it can be much more subtle in terms of appearance. So pay attention to the history your patient is describing. And perhaps most importantly, remember the serious impact that rosacea can have on someone's sense of self and their self-confidence. Depression and other mental health disturbances, as well as a profound sense of isolation, can occur in these patients, and this impact is not to be minimized. So take the time to explore the patient's symptoms and lay out the treatment algorithm with them. All right, now on to the rest of the show. What are some things that we'll be tackling this month? Well, Penny, we have some great stuff lined up in your honor as co-host this month. Given the viral soup that seems to be inundating the world right now, Hobie and Heidi tackle ways to prevent the common cold, while in our office segments, we're talking about cannabis cessation as well as lower back pain. And of course, we also have urgent care, rural med and PCMA. So sit back and enjoy February 2023, and we'll see you on the other side for the summary. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hey, Hobie. Hey, how are you? I am, actually, I'm just getting over a cold. How are you feeling? Well, you know what? I'm starting to feel better, and I thought I'd take advantage of this opportunity for you and I to talk about colds, upper respiratory tract infections, and how to prevent getting them. Okay, so that's a great topic because I I would say certainly during the winter season, coughs and colds are frequent complaints and reasons why people come and see their doctor. So any kind of help and advice on how to deal with that, I think would be super helpful. So what do we know? Well, well, we know there's the basics. We know avoiding people who are sick, good hand hygiene, masking if you want to, proper ventilation, all of those things are important. But the questions I feel from patients more often is, is there anything they can take to quote unquote, boost their immune system to help make sure they don't get a cold? Yes, I love the question. It's always boost. It's always like, I need to boost my immune system. (laughs) What does that mean? Right, like, have you ever boosted a car? I kind of have that same thing. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Woo, let's go lick some doorknobs. The PR marketing groups have been so good about this because that's it's like it's always that boosting. I gotta boost my immune system. And what they're referring to, patients want some kind of supplement. They want an herb. They want something natural that they can take to kind of boost their immune system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, patients ask about a lot of them, but I wanted to focus on the three I feel questions about most commonly. Um, the mm-hmm. first one is vitamin C, and I'll admit I grew up taking a lot of vitamin C for colds. The next one is echinacea. And the last one is zinc. 
So I thought we could delve into what the actual evidence says here. And honestly, I'm surprised by some of it. Okay, you got my attention here. So I would just say, just to clarify, we're talking about prevention, preventing a cold, like prophylaxis. Or are we talking about actually treating cold symptoms? Mostly we're looking at prevention, but there's actually some data on cold symptom duration and severity for some of these. Nice. All right. So let's start. Vitamin C. Let's start with Linus Pauling's favorite substance, vitamin C. So he really helped vitamin C skyrocket to fame, and this was in the 1970s. And according to him, a daily vitamin C intake of 1,000 milligrams can reduce the incidence of colds by about 45 percent. Whoa. So I think we need to put that to the test. It's just so shocking to me because there's so few things in medicine that have any numbers that shocking, right? Like the, even right. the best things we do don't reduce things by 45 percent. So what's the background here? So the background is that vitamin C is important for the immune system for several reasons. And we're not getting into the depths of physiology here, but just to say it protects white blood cells from oxidative stress. It helps phagocytes move along towards the intruders, and it influences cytokines. How? I don't know. (laughs) You're not an immunology fan? What gave me away? (laughs) Does vitamin C work? Well, what do we find out here when we start to look into it? We know that people who have low vitamin C levels, because they're not taking enough in, are more likely to get sick. But it's pretty easy to get enough vitamin C. 90 milligrams is what men need and 15 milligrams for women. But when we're talking about Linus Pauling level intake, we're over a gram per day, okay? So he wants us to take that much. And the tolerable upper limit is two grams. Yeah, and from what I remember, there are problems with taking too much vitamin C, like kidney stones and gout, because like vitamin C impacts uric acid. Right, yeah. So here's the thing. Colds are unpleasant, but well, I'd choose them over gout and uh, nephrolithiasis any day, yes. yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's really interesting. If you take too much of the vitamin C, so at like megadose levels, vitamin C actually becomes pro-oxidant instead of an antioxidant. So there are some downsides to taking too much of it. Okay. So you got my head swimming with the signs here, but does it actually work? Like does taking a daily vitamin C prevent a cold? Well, there are some decent studies here and actually a Cochrane review, but the best answer I can give you, Hobie, is not for most of us. Okay, but for some? Yeah, daily vitamin C could be helpful for those whose jobs are very physically demanding. They looked at it in very specific groups, Korean soldiers and extreme like cross-country skier and distance running athletes. Could you be a little more specific? Why does it help prevent colds in this group? Well, it looks like all of the physical activity that they're doing can cause immune stress, and vitamin C can help counterbalance that. So, yeah, I guess I'll keep that in mind. I am Korean by ethnicity, so (laughs) if I uh, join the military here, I'll I'll make sure I pack my vitamin C. Uh, But what about the impact on, like, cold duration and severity? Mm, Okay, so... It's interesting. There's a a meta-analysis showed that daily supplementation of a range of 0.5 to 2 grams, huge range, decreased the duration of a cold by 14%. So that's if you're taking it before you get the cold. So it's maybe helpful. Maybe. 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 Especially if you're a Korean soldier who likes to do (laughs) cross-country skiing. (laughs) Yes. So again, a very narrow niche of patients. (laughs) Yeah. At least in the data, you know, like I'm sure if we did studies in other groups, we might find it helpful. But uh, That's what we have actual evidence for. Echinacea. 
Okay, so let's switch gears here. So then how about echinacea? Echinacea is actually my favorite flower. Fun fact. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. Okay, so I, I appreciate the beauty of the flower, <laughs> but what about for cold? Is there any biological plausibility of how it works? So it's interesting with echinacea, all parts of the flowers can be used from the roots right on up to the petals, and it contains many bioactive ingredients. And there's a long list of these bioactive ingredients that we don't need to get into. All that to say is that given this huge variety, it's really tricky to standardize echinacea supplements. Okay, so uh, so what does the data show? Because I know a lot of people use echinacea and echinacea-type products for prevention. Yeah, yeah. So Cochrane looked at this in 2014. And they said it was a tricky review because there are so many different echinacea preparations. But what they found is that it is not effective as prophylaxis, but they found a non-significant trend to it perhaps being helpful in treatment. So maybe helpful when you get a cold to start echinacea, but they did note a high dropout rate once people started taking echinacea. Interesting. I would have thought there would have been more support for something like echinacea. 2014 is a little old. Do we have anything since then? Yeah, so there's a, a journal article in 2016 from a journal that I wouldn't usually think to turn to for guidance, Holistic Nurse Practitioner. And this looked at a proprietary extract of Echinacea purpura. And so you know, basically like a standardized herbal supplement. And this study showed that for long-term prevention, taking this supplement was associated with a reduction in the total number of cold episodes, a reduction in the number of the days with colds, and a reduction in cold episodes requiring additional medication. I don't know. I, anything that says proprietary extract, <laughs> I, I'm always like, I'm always suspect. I'm like, of course, you're going to show that it's helpful so that you can get it to the market and sell a bunch of it. Right. So, I don't funded, know. By, funded by yes. proprietary extract makers. So That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm feeling uh, less enthusiastic about this. Me too. Like, I really thought Echinacea was, uh, was going to show that it's, uh, it's wonderful, but apparently not. Zinc. Okay, so let's talk about the last one. And from my recollection, my vague recollection, there is some data to support zinc. So let's talk about zinc. Yeah, yeah, we'll save the best to last here. And let's start off by looking at what it does in the body. So zinc, it's safe to say it does a heck of a lot. It's a cofactor in over 300 enzymatic reactions. It works in the immune system and is directly involved in stimulating leukocyte production and function. So it's an important little mineral. Wow. Uh, I know 300. That's crazy. Okay. So in addition to where we get it in our diet, is there any evidence that it can prevent colds or shorten their duration? Yeah, so unfortunately, there's not enough uh, information to talk about prophylaxis. We just honestly don't have the data. It's not really been looked at to say for sure one way or another. So if you're interested in an area of research with me, Hobie, we can uh, look at zinc for cold prophylaxis. I love it. If you're a listener and you want to be enrolled in our trial, <laughs> reach out to us. Yeah, we'll do a multi-center. A multi we got That's the right. East Coast. we got the West Coast. We need to get some things in between there. So, yeah. But we'd love for you to be a part of our trial. That's right. Disclaimer, Right on Prime does not actually run any multi-centered research projects outside of Heidi's and Hobie's imaginations, that is. Oh my gosh, so, <laughs> so prevention, no, there's nothing really that tells us one way or another about zinc, but for treatment, yeah, yeah, zinc actually seems to work. So much so that the American Family Physician included it in their 2019 article on treating the common cold, so... Lots of uh, research showing it works, including the Cochrane Review that looked at it in 2013. 
And it looks like taking more than 75 milligrams of zinc within 24 hours of symptom onset decreases the duration of a cold, which is very nice. And a 2015 meta-analysis broke it down into a little bit more detail. If you take these zinc acetate lozenges, nasal congestion was decreased by 37% in duration, sneezing by 22%, scratchy throat by 33%, cough by 46%, oh my gosh, and muscle ache duration decreased by 54%. Wow. But you know what? It didn't help. What didn't it help? Headache and fever. But everything else, everything else, like that sounds, I mean, it might be too good to be true, but that's pretty amazing. So what about side effects? Is the side effect profile, though, kind of severe enough or frequent enough that it would deter us from recommending it? Not really. The 2015 meta-analysis said that the adverse effects of zinc were pretty mild, so not really enough to suggest not using it. Yeah, I I do want to comment uh, that um, the studies were looking at lozenges, so the kind of oral formulation. There is a nasal version of zinc that you can spray in your nose, and that has been associated with some uh, complication of a loss of smell. And so we're talking specifically about kind of the oral formulation here. Yeah, absolutely. No, we didn't get into the nasal sprays. Take home points. I'm going to try to summarize this to make sure we have it straight. So vitamin C doesn't work in preventing a cold unless you're a Korean soldier or a hardcore (laughs) distance athlete. And taking high doses might shorten colds for up to 14% if you take it when you get a cold. Yes, correct. Echinacea doesn't prevent, nor does it really treat a cold. Correct. And zinc, there's not really enough data to show if it does or doesn't help prevent a cold, but At high doses, uh, greater than 75 milligrams a day, it seems to affect a lot of the symptoms and the duration of a cold uh, if you get You got it. You got it. The take-home message is zinc for the win. Go stock up. (laughs) Yeah. Until we get the next study that comes on the show, it doesn't actually work. (laughs) No, no. I need to have this hard and fast truth. I need to take this with me through the rest of cold season. cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist Generalist. greetings all this is vanessa carty here for the generalist and today i'm joined by the one and only jake anderson thanks for helping me present this case jake (laughs) happy to be here vanessa so what do you want to talk about today Well, under the generalist, one of the things that we like to do is to try and empower primary care physicians to remind them that primary care doesn't stop in the family medicine office and that there are many, many interventions and procedures that we are perfectly well equipped to tackle. And what better example of such a procedure than a suprapubic catheterization? Jake, now, have you ever done one of these? No, I got to tell you, I'm pretty intimidated by this procedure, just having never done one myself. And so this is great. This is I'm excited for this segment. Yeah, I think we tend to think of this as a procedure that's done in the emergency department when a patient presents with acute urinary obstruction, or maybe they've had significant pelvic trauma and routine catheterization is not deemed to be safe. And as generalists, those scenarios certainly might be where we are being asked to do this procedure, but we might also encounter patients who need a suprapubic catheterization when we're on the ward or perhaps caring for a patient at a nursing home. It can be particularly useful in those settings where you either don't want to transfer the patient to the local hospital because of their level of care or perhaps transportation issues, but a catheterization is needed as a palliative measure, or in the situation where you don't have a urologist or other surgeon at your local hospital. 
It seems like it would come up a lot for our generalist crew here. And so, what was the situation you were dealing with, Vanessa? Was this patient a trauma patient crashing in the ED? Actually, quite the opposite, in fact. This was a patient who has actually lived in our small remote hospital for about 15 months. He's a young man who is in a neurovegetative state and who is trached but breathing room air and who for the first few months of his ICU stay for anoxic brain injury was not actually catheterized. However, he began to develop sacral bed sores, which became infected, and so it was felt that catheterization was appropriate. So before he was transferred back to our hospital from the big city ICU, they put a Foley catheter in. So for about a year, he had this indwelling Foley, which was changed on a regular basis as per protocol. But the chronic pressure from the Foley gradually began to break down the periurethral tissues, and little by little, the penis itself became transected. We were told that this was quite normal in cases like his, and that also he had no pain reflexes, so that we were supposed to be less worried about this, but the issue was clearly upsetting to the patient's family and to the nursing team in our small remote hospital. So at the family's request, we looked into other options and decided to go with a trial of suprapubic catheterization. Now, we were lucky as this wasn't an emergency, so we had time to prepare well and get everything organized. Mm, and as we always say, preparation is key. While sometimes the momentum of an impending emergency is helpful in pushing us to act, being able to prepare ahead of time is more ideal, right? So what are the steps you go through? Well, first off, I wanted to make sure that I had consent and that I felt that it would be actually beneficial to the patient. So I called his mom, who has his power of attorney, and confirmed that she did wish for us to attempt this. I outlined the risks of the procedure at that point, you know, that it might not work at all, that it might fail, and we might have to put a urethral catheter back in, that I could potentially injure another structure in the process of inserting it. For example, the bladder could be damaged. There is a risk of infection. And of course, you know, death, that standard cheery medical <laughs> disclosure. Right. Always feels so great when you have to throw death into the consent conversation, right? But it feels like we have to say that for so many procedures. And thankfully, this is just to be on the safe side, but it still feels weird to say. Yeah, for sure. So after the consent was confirmed, I reviewed again the possible contraindications for a suprapubic catheter. Of course, when it's an emergent situation and the bladder is at risk of perforating, if you don't do the procedure, then these are weighed somewhat differently. But in this case, I was just wanting to be sure that there weren't any glaring reasons to not do the procedure. So some commonly referenced relative contraindications for suprapubic caths include a coagulopathy of some form. And for this particular patient, we had no reason to suspect it. But I even did do an INR just to be sure. And it was normal. You want to make sure there's no overlying area of cellulitis. And in our case, it was all good. And of course, you have to be concerned if there was like an underlying osteomyelitis of the pubis. But this is usually more for post-surgical patients who maybe have had hardware or a trauma patient. And these were not things that I was worried about. So it sounds like you were clear in terms of contraindications. What stuff did you prepare? Like what equipment did you have to gather at the bedside? Well, the first thing I did was actually prepare the bladder. Usually when we're called on to do a suprapubic catheter, it's to relieve obstruction because the bladder is full, making for an easy target. But in this case, our patient had an indwelling foley and the bladder was just constantly draining. A suprapubic approach with a floppy bladder wasn't going to get me very far. So I clamped the catheter and let the urine build up in the bladder while I went about doing the rest of the prep. And while this was happening, we checked our stock of suprapubic catheters. These are often stored in the crash room of smaller hospitals, and that is indeed where we found ours. So if you're looking for yours in a small hospital somewhere, always check the crash room. Unfortunately, we didn't have a great variety of stock to choose from in terms of sizes of catheters to insert, and we only had the one type. We had the Malakot type of catheter insertion kit, and I'll describe that a little bit later in detail what that is. 
And so depending on what type of kit your hospital carries, there might be a few small differences in procedure here, but overall the prep, positioning, and most of the insertion is exactly the same. I am by no means endorsing the Malakot kit over another kit, it just happens to be what we had in stock. So I grabbed a few different sizes of catheter kits, a drainage system for the catheter itself, as well as some skin prep, some local anesthetic, a needle and syringe, some gauze, I don't really know why, but gauze is always useful, <laughs> and the ultrasound machine. When I was first taught how to do a superbuvit catheter, we palpated and percussed the bladder in order to get our target. This is still feasible, of course, and it's a good skill to practice, but if you have access to an ultrasound machine and possibly a helper to hold the probe, then simply why not make the job as easy as possible? It's great to be able to actually see where you're going. Yeah, the ultrasound is super helpful in this case, I could see. Any advice on how exactly to position the ultrasound probe or, or how to have that helper hold it? Well, first just position it over the suprapubic region and try to get a good view of the bladder with the bladder in the center of the screen. Then, and this is the ideal situation where you have a helper who can be your second pair of hands, the helper is going to keep the probe in position while you are doing the insertion. You can always mark the spot with a sharpie as well, but having the helper will be so much easier as you work to insert the catheter. All right, so you've found the bladder, you have all your stuff, clean the skin, and away you go? Oh, not so fast, Jake, not so fast. Before going any further, I would strongly suggest ensuring that your patient has adequate analgesia. We're going to freeze the skin where we insert the catheter, and more on that in a second, but in patients where you have the time to plan this procedure because it isn't an emergency, I think providing some systemic pain relief is a key step not to be missed. Our patient was in a neurovegetative state, and we had been assured that he did not feel pain responses, but we still opted to give a small dose of sub-Q hydromorphone about 30 minutes before the procedure. Great point, Vanessa. If you have the time and resources available, of course, we want to do everything we can to make sure this procedure is as comfortable as possible for the patient. I know that I would be pretty unnerved if I was told that someone was sticking a tube into my bladder by making a hole in my abdominal wall, so analgesia and perhaps some anxiolytics uh, would be helpful as well. In responsive patients, we don't want them squirming or withdrawing as you insert the chokar, so getting them as comfortable as possible is key. Okay, so now we have everything. The bladder is full and the patient has been given some meds to take the edge off and we're good to go. So check the bladder again with the ultrasound, make sure that it's full enough, and mark the spot you want to make the entry. You're going to prep the skin and then freeze the skin at the incision site and also down the track you will follow to the bladder. Take the scalpel and make a small incision in the skin at the spot you marked. You can always ask your helper to keep the ultrasound probe in place so you're getting a live view. This will certainly help. Now, depending on the type of kit you have, you will be advancing either a trocar or a needle with a catheter threaded over it. Advance slowly through the tracheonesotides, and then you're going to feel a bit of resistance as you get to the bladder. This is the point where I find it can get a bit tricky if the bladder isn't very full. You might kind of feel it slip away from you. So as we said before, you want to make sure that that foley has been clamped so you get a nice taut bladder. Now with the probe, you should be able to see the needle getting into the bladder, and you should also have urine coming back up towards you. It's a nice sort of positive reinforcement sign. When you get peed on, that means you're in the bladder. Once you're sure you're in the right place, pull out the trocar, or in some cases the needles, and in some kits you might actually have a peel-away sort of segment of the introducer, and you peel that away and then the catheter will be left inside the bladder. Now, I mentioned we use this Malakot catheter kit, which is designed to stay in place without the need for a balloon once it's inside the bladder. So once the needle is removed, the end of the catheter, the one that's in the bladder, turns into a sort of 3D cruciate shape, which anchors the tube. But in different kits, you might need to secure placement by putting air or water in a balloon, just like with a Foley. 
Of course, you want to make sure that the catheter is secured at the skin, so throw a few sutures in there. And of course, don't forget to attach the catheter to a collection contraption of some sort, because you do not want pee all over the bed. Indeed. So there's an awesome video of a super pubic catheter insertion over on MRAP HD. The link will be in the show notes. And I strongly suggest that everyone check it out. It isn't using a Malacott catheter, so the little detail is different, but otherwise everything else is the same. All right, so in summary. Recap. Review the indications and contraindications. Get consent. Prep the equipment. Ensure the bladder's full. Give the patient something for pain and anxiety. Ask for a helper if possible. Bring the ultrasound machine along with you. Check the bladder position. Clean the skin. Freeze the skin and the track down to the bladder. Nick the skin with the scalpel. Advance the needle or trocar. Check that the catheter is in the bladder by looking for urine return and also seeing the image on the ultrasound screen. Secure the catheter and put a dressing on the abdominal wall. Attach the catheter to a drainage system and document the procedure and when it needs to be repeated. That about sum it up? That's right. I think you got all of the key points there. My goal with this piece really was to remind everyone that this is an option in non-emergent situations as well. And if we feel comfortable doing them, then we are offering an awesome service to our patients. Also, if you've done even one in a non-emergent situation, it will definitely be less stressful to do one when you really need to do one in an emergency. So now that you are armed with this information, check out the HD video and practice one whenever you get a chance. Thanks so much, Jake. That's super helpful. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm here today with Dr. Brandon Grove, family physician and educator extraordinaire. And the topic at hand today is cannabis and specifically cannabis cessation. So good to see you again, Brandon. Good to be with you, Heidi. Now, cannabis is one of these things, Brandon, that has enjoyed, let's call it, increased popularity in the last number of years. And a lot of people use cannabis with great levels of enjoyment and no ill effect. But there are some people for whom their cannabis use becomes problematic. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. Being on the West Coast, cannabis has always been a thing, and, and California legalized recreational use fairly recently. So I actually have a lot coming in through my office who are daily or regular users. This is something that's gotten a lot stronger since the 60s, right? Like the cannabis of today is not our parents' and grandparents' cannabis. Not even close. My patients who are hippies, if they try today's stuff, they get their head blown off. <laughs> Essentially, in the uh, 90s, when we first started measuring, we were seeing like 4% THC levels. By 2014, you know, 12. And then there are some strains that have been so concentrated that they've actually measured 37% THC. So, yeah, not your grandma and grandpa's cannabis. And it is this THC concentration that we are seeing some more of the, the ill effects from. It doesn't seem to be as big an issue with the CBD, the cannabinoid component, but definitely with the THC. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the things we see, they're obviously physiologic as well as habitual components to their use. And, you know, we know there's physiologic addiction because we see ever-increasing frequency of these withdrawal symptoms, whether it's through your, your clinic, uh, whether it's through an emergency room. And studies suggest that about 9%, maybe 1 in 10, will actually become dependent upon cannabis with uh, regular use. And if people start earlier, that number actually rises up to about 17%. So approaching one in five early cannabis users becoming physiologically dependent. I initially thought that the withdrawal from cannabis wouldn't be significant or would take several weeks to develop because cannabis stays in the system for a long time. But 
I've noticed in my patients who are frequent users of large amounts of cannabis, they go into withdrawal quite quickly. Absolutely. And and those chronic users, as they get those levels up, obviously, when that level drops, if they stop using, they're going to feel that effect even after only a few weeks of regular use. Obviously, the more you use, the quicker that withdrawal potential develops. And, and we see fairly common withdrawal symptoms. We see insomnia, we see irritability, oftentimes anxiety, even panic attacks, and uh, as well as depressed mood as people withdraw off of cannabis. And I would like to think that these withdrawal symptoms should be assigned to us and to our patients. That's something probably needs to change here. As you know, as a family physician, sometimes we have to point those things out to our patients. It's true. <laughs> but yes, and, and when people start to complain about those things, I do think that's a teachable moment for them to kind of jump in and say, so when your body starts feeling these things, that should be a sign to you that it's really gotten used to it and your brain has gotten used to that and maybe we need to step back and maybe we need to talk about how to get off of this and actually get you living clean and, and, and hopefully happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what percentage of folks who consume cannabis experience withdrawal? For our recreational users who are here and there, they're probably not going to experience withdrawal at all. But the regular users, those would be daily or at least three plus times a week. About three out of 10 are going to show evidence of withdrawal within uh, prevalence within a calendar year. So about 30% are going to have this withdrawal symptom. And the THC component is the part that is most highly associated with withdrawal. So people who are using very, very low strength THC and less frequently are much less likely to withdraw. High concentration with uh, more regular use, those people are much more likely. So off of that 30% or so, regular users, high quantity, if they stop abruptly, they're going to have a much more likely than 30% chance. Those who are just dabbling with uh, much lower concentrations, much less likely to have that issue. Now, do withdrawal symptoms tend to impact different subsets of patients more than others? As a general rule, the withdrawal hasn't shown a predilection based on age, gender, ethnicity, as, as far as we've been able to find. Although gender-wise, there is a difference in how people experience that withdrawal. So women are more likely to experience uh, GI-related issues, uh, mood symptoms such as anxiety and depression, whereas men tend more to have insomnia related to their withdrawal. Let's talk about something that I know we've all heard of and seen, and that's cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Is this indicative of physiologic dependence? Should this be taken as a sign, Brandon? When you're vomiting your guts out and you end up at the ER, that should be taken as a sign that maybe you've got a problem. Yeah, so it's interesting. I hadn't really seen this much until about four or five years ago. And then all of a sudden, I kept hearing from my ER colleagues that this was something that they were seeing now all the time. Primarily young people coming in with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, dehydration. And a lot of users just assume, oh, I just need a little bit more to settle my nausea. Uh, since that's historically been one of its medicinal uses. And as they use more, they actually, they send themselves into a spiral and down they go. And a lot of that I think is, is related to the concentration. So low levels of cannabis have in some studies been shown to diminish nausea. Once you get those higher doses in, it's like you switch to the opposite end of the spectrum and can have a pro-emetic effect. And now all of a sudden you've got these people get themselves dehydrated. The dehydration causes more uh, nausea they smoke a little bit more to try and settle it, and they just go downhill. It looks like a terribly unpleasant condition to have. And uh, I'm always thankful when patients are able to put two and two together and link their overuse of cannabis to, to the syndrome. Absolutely. 
In addition to what we see with these physiologic addictions, obviously very similar to regular tobacco use, there are also the habitual patterns that we need to kind of look at and address as well. Yeah. And what, and what do you mean by habitual patterns, Brandon? With habitual patterns, what we tend to see is there are certain settings, certain locations, certain times of day that tend to go along with use, very much like we see with our tobacco patients. And so doing what we can to try and illuminate those for our patients, asking them about their use patterns so that they can start to see and process what are those triggers that I have during my day? What are those practices that are essentially enabling me to continue being a, a daily or a regular user? And how can I change those patterns? Because we're all creatures of habit. How can I change those patterns to maybe help break that connection so that that, in addition to the physiologic component, doesn't cause me to continue to use and potentially get further down the road and end up with an, a hyperemesis or something like that? Mm, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Now, as I understand, there is not a lot of research specific to cannabis cessation. So we do borrow a lot from the tobacco cessation literature when we talk about how to help our patients. Can you give us a little bit of a refresher on some of the basics here on how we help our patients identify that they need to quit and how to help them do so? Absolutely. Now, I'm hopeful now that there is legislation-wise a little bit more freedom with cannabis products that will actually start to get more, more research to actually have an evidence-based cessation practice. But again, due to the, to the Schedule One DEA classification of marijuana, that, that information just isn't available. But I'm hopeful in the next few years we will have that. But borrowing from our, our tobacco cessation, you know, the CDC loves alliteration anytime we can make things really, really easy. And their tobacco cessation recommendations tell us to ask, advise, assess, assist, and arrange. Now, good luck with that. But as, as I was going through their order, it really fits with, I think, what, what I and many family docs have been doing regularly anyway, just in a non-alliterative form. <laughs> yes, we don't usually sit in our offices and think, gee, let me alliterate my way through this one. Occasionally we might, but uh, not with every visit. Alliterations are always awesome and amazing and astounding and alluring and agreeable and all around applicable. And so let's talk about the beautiful A alliteration. Walk us through it here. Ask. All right. So first step is to ask. And, and again, that's asking about their current use. I know a lot of the electronic medical record systems within their social history section, they have this information put in. And that information is in my view as I'm typing through my notes. So I've really got no excuse not to ask. So if I see that the, the box has been checked that they are a smoker or that they are a regular marijuana user, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask in a non-judgmental way, of course. But I'm going to ask so that as they hear me asking, it shows that it's an area of concern for me in regard to their health. Yes, absolutely. I think the non-judgmental is key because we don't want to build up more defenses and more barriers than exist already to help our patients with, uh, with cutting back and quitting. Right. And then it also does open the door then to, to educate that individual down the road as far as this is not a substance that does not have any risk. Uh, anytime we light something on fire and inhale the smoke, uh, there can be damage, right? <laughs> and that may even, that you may end up in a discussion of inhalation versus vaping versus, versus edibles, et cetera. Advise. So we've asked, and, and then that gives us kind of a springboard then to advise. We, ad we advise that, that individual to quit. Again, no, no judgment involved, but quitting smoking is probably, if they're a user of smoker or even quitting cannabis, using a substance that can alter us mentally. This is one of our highest priorities in the health and paying health dividends moving forward for our patients. Okay, so, so far we have asked, 
we have advised, and it looks like the next one is to assess. Assess. Right. So let's say you've got someone who comes in and they have absolutely no desire to quit. We, we have to assess that willingness. And so we might find that if they're coming in with complaints of a cough, they're coming in with complaints of feeling fatigued or tired, that might be a wonderful teaching moment to actually say, this may be related to your use and, and use that to maybe elevate their level of willingness. Okay. And that's, that's then going to set the stage for future discussions. You may very well have a patient who says, I'm not quitting, doc, and, and that's just the way it is. Okay, take that under advisement, but then also be aware that down the road, they may have a medical issue that you can link to their use that may then change that willingness to quit. Assist. And occasionally, occasionally, Brandon, we luck out and we find somebody, we hit them at just the right time. They are willing and ready and perhaps even enthusiastic to stop smoking cannabis or, or cigarettes. How do we, next day, assist a patient with their quitting attempts? I like to give them tools. And so, for example, I'll suggest that they perhaps play a game on their phone when they, anytime they feel an urge uh, to use. And what they can do is just distract themselves for a period of time because that urge, that desire is there for a very brief period of time. And so if we can just say, hey, you're just, you're just going to distract yourself for a little bit that's all you need to do. Uh, me personally, I use uh, my wife's grandmother. She was a 50 plus year smoker. She would play solitaire on the computer every time she felt the urge to smoke. And it upset my, my grandfather-in-law because he kept getting kicked off the computer, but that's how she quit. She didn't use any nicotine replacement, nothing else, just something to distract in, in the meantime. Also looking at their triggers, change their daily routine. So if the cannabis use comes like after a meal as they're sitting out on the patio, Go for a walk. Do something that separates those behaviors and, and, and your routine. It's basically unpairing the activity so that we're, we're essentially doing the opposite of that operant conditioning we all learned about. So we are, we are deconstructing that. So meet someplace with a friend where you can't use. Put yourself in a position where there are some sort of um, uh, constraints against you using. So all of those can be very helpful. Now getting to the last A. Arrange. Arrange. And I'm sure this is not like arrange their day-to-day -day activities for them so they can never smoke cannabis. It must mean something other than that. <laughs> right. Arrange a follow-up visit for your patient. You know, our patients are like us. The things that are repeated in our lives are things that are important. And so when we set that appointment, we're saying, this is an important thing that we want to talk about with you. And it's important enough that we're going to create time on our schedule for you. So let's set a time, come back in. And that way, they've also got that just kind of hanging over them, if you will, so that hopefully they'll go, you know what? Uh, gosh, I'm seeing, I'm seeing my doctor next week. I really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off. I'm not going to use. Okay, so that's our general approach to helping move patients towards cannabis cessation. Now, I want to take a few minutes and look at specific treatments that are available. Treatment. Let's start with behavioral treatments. This is where we get to all be our, our inner psychologist for our patients. And so a few things that, that have uh, shown benefit, cognitive behavioral therapy, hopefully we're all reasonably familiar with that, maybe not the intricacies, but essentially um, using psychotherapy to kind of identify and then correct behaviors. And so getting our patients, whether it's through a workbook, through a therapist, to kind of look at how they started using, why they started using what benefits they think they get and, and, and what that really is and actually kind of identifying, is this truly something that I need or is this something that I've developed as a crutch 
and I can, I can undo that and find other healthy ways to use something else to help with my stress, to help with my, uh, my anxiety, to help with whatever it was that, that really started things. Very much like uh, working perhaps with our kids, contingency management. And this would be a, a system of rewards or punishments to direct behavioral change. I tend to prefer the reward side, but some people do better with punishments. And so if they use and they know that they were saying, I'm not going to use, they can set up their own settings. So like maybe if they use, they put, you know, $20 or $50 in a jar and that's going to be my, I lose, I lose my money and I lose that opportunity. And maybe somewhere down the road, that then becomes a reward for them. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. The other thing that we might see is just uh, what we call motivated enhancement therapy. And this is having the individual look at how am I motivated? Because some people are motivated internally. Some people are motivated externally, but really kind of looking, instead of having that external reward model, looking at internally, how can I motivate myself internally to develop a desire to change? And so, you know, that may be something as simple as I want to have a little bit more motivation to work on this uh, creative project on the side. And my use may be slowing that down. I want to speed that up. Okay. So I am going to keep reminding myself that when I don't use I actually have more creative energy. I have more, more physical energy to go do those things. And so really kind of looking at what are those things that motivate me? And oftentimes our cannabis patients, they may have that motivation that's just died because of the cannabis. And so maybe even using that as their motivation, motivation being the motivation uh, <laughs> to, right. to, to move forward, knowing that I want to have those desires to do more things. How can I get that lowering or, or, or cutting off cannabis use may be one of those things that gets them there. Okay. Yeah, that's a helpful overview of behavioral treatment options. Um, how about pharmacologic options here? What uh, what do we have? <laughs> uh, well, we, we, we've got a lot of non, uh, non-FDA approved options. Oh, fantastic. It must be family medicine we're talking about here if there's a lot of non-FDA approved ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm prescribing something off-label. Yeah. How many mm-hmm. times have we had that discussion? At present, there's no FDA indicated uh, therapy, but as far as treating withdrawal symptoms, um, we, do have, we do have quite a few options. So for agitation, for example, we have uh, drenabinol, uh, which is a synthetic cannabinoid. We have gabapentin. Gosh, I use gabapentin for all kinds of stuff now. Mm-hmm. Or something like a benzo, like uh, diazepam or Valium. That can be useful for the agitation. Tremors, um, low-dose diazepam can work quite well in those settings. Again, realizing that a lot of these people have a physiologic addiction. We don't want to go overboard with uh, anything in the benzodiazepine family, but limited numbers at smaller doses may be useful with the tremors. As far as the nausea and stomach pain, particularly for those individuals who have shown a a predisposition to end up in the ER, using metoclopramide, hyosamine, promethazine, and acetaminophen even uh, can all be very, very helpful in that regard. And for those with true hyperemesis from their cannabis use, let's not forget the antipsychotics. Haloperidol and olanzapine are the ones that come to mind here. Okay, so we do have options, Brandon, and I know that's not all the options, so carry on. Sure. Another thing, particularly with kind of the, the daily heavier users, they, they can get psychotic. And so using antipsychotics, preferentially one of the newer atypical antipsychotics can be useful there in cutting back the psychosis. And then insomnia issues, uh, th- those who are chronic users, that does tend to at least help them get to sleep. And so cessation may cause some trouble there. So Again, low-dose diazepam may be useful. There's also some studies that show the extended release uh, Zolpidem or Ambien can be uh, useful, as well as promethazine or even the uh, atypical antipsychotic uh, quetiapine. Okay, okay. That is uh, 
helpful review because we certainly are going to uh, run into this from time to time. So now we've compared the cessation model to tobacco cessation. What about the medications that we use for tobacco cessation? Is there any role for them here with cannabis? There is a role in the sense that a lot of our cannabis users are also tobacco users. And so, uh, in fact, a lot, of, a lot of individuals will actually roll the two together. The nicotine can actually help with the buzz or <laughs> augment the buzz, if you will, from marijuana. And so that's, that's not an uncommon practice. And so, you know, because of that, a lot of the, a lot of the tobacco medicines have been tried to see if they would help with cessation. Unfortunately, the studies that have been done show that, that it hasn't really worked well. Bupropion or Wellbutrin, which we've used for tobacco cessation, tends to make the withdrawal uh, worse, as does atomoxetine and venlafaxine. Mirtazapine, which is kind of one of the atypical antidepressants, did help some with the sleep and the appetite, but it didn't really help as far as cessation or decreasing use. It just helped with some of those, those potential uh, sleep disruption and appetite issues that may happen with higher levels. And then buspirone or, or buspar, the uh, men in the study uh, got a little bit of improvement over the placebo. Uh, women, the placebo actually worked even better. So um, mm. I, I would say the data is not strong that these would be very, very helpful. Okay, perfect. What about varenicline, Brandon? We use that a fair bit for tobacco cessation. What's its role here? Yeah, it certainly has, has its role in tobacco cessation. And uh, there was a recent study in 2021 that looked at it, kind of a, a proof of concept trial, if you will, to see, is this something that we need to investigate further? And the, the, the results would suggest that we do need to do a larger scale study, and there may be actually um, a potential use for varenicline for uh, cannabis use disorder. Okay. Okay. That's, uh, that's excellent to know. Lastly, I've heard some rumblings about naltrexone. Talk to me about that. It seems like naltrexone can be used for almost anything uh, if you if you modify the dose enough. <laughs> there was there was a 2015 study looking at a kind of off-label naltrexone use in individuals who, interestingly enough, were not actively trying to quit. And what they found in those who administered the naltrexone is that it actually reduced their self-administration of cannabinoids. The placebo group, in fact, was 7.6 times more likely to self-administer cannabis than the study group. Unfortunately, again, the research is, is scarce due to the Schedule One classification of, of the cannabinoids. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, hopefully that will open up um, as we have a little bit more societal acceptance and potentially maybe federal government acceptance of, of cannabinoids as a potential option moving forward. Okay. Okay. Good. So in other words, just to summarize, we're still winging it for pharmacologic <laughs> managements of uh, cannabis cessation. Well, we are, but I would also say stay tuned. Because uh, we're looking at you know things like naltrexone, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing trials using things like ecstasy in, in microdosing, ketamine, things like that that we're seeing working within the mental health spectrum, perhaps drawn in and utilized uh, as well for uh, use disorder like cannabinoid use disorder. Okay, so stay tuned to the space for more. Absolutely. Well, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to sum this all up for us, Brandon. What's the take-home message here? Take-home points. Take-home message, we need to ask our patients about their use and really kind of create uh, a teamwork so that we can educate them, explain why this may not be in their best interest health-wise. And if nothing else, if we can't get them to quit, at least get them to cut down so that they have less likelihood to have withdrawal symptoms that may then affect their life, their health, their happiness moving forward. 
Okay, perfect. That's a, that's a wonderful summary. Our goal is to make sure our patients lead happy, full lives. And sometimes Absolutely. cannabis uh, doesn't pair that. True, true. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. It's been a delight chatting with you. Uh, you take care. Always wonderful to talk with you, Heidi. I'll see you next time in the same joint. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> Quite successfully, too, I might have. Andrew Bilt, it is good to talk to you again, my friend. Oh, yes, Heidi James. These are always my favorite conversations of the month, of the year, of the half year, of the decade. These nerdy chats, I just live for these things. Uh, Me too. Me too, to be honest. Nerds. And today our topic is back pain. And it's going to be a super in the weeds, really nerdy session. And this topic is really important because we see it all the time in family medicine. We see it in the office. We see it in the ED. We see it in hospitalized patients. It's a staple of practice. And actually, it seems to be a staple of life because up to 40% of us will have low back pain in our lifetime. That's a lot of people. That is so many people. And with so many people being affected by this, you would think that we would have solid evidence-based information to inform our approach. But no, of course not. When you dig into the guidelines, you will find about a million different answers to questions like, how do we manage low back pain? And I'll give you just one example. A paper from 2018 looked at 15 guidelines worldwide on back pain and found 50% of the guidelines recommended the use of acetaminophen and 36% of the guidelines recommended against the use of acetaminophen. We can't even agree on acetaminophen for Pete's sakes. (laughs) We can't make this stuff up, right? Like this is medicine. Exactly. It's, It's wild that Basically, some are saying yes and some are saying no, and everyone should be looking at the same information. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So we haven't made our minds up about acetaminophen, but you know what else we haven't even made up our minds about? It's the definition of what's acute low back pain versus what's chronic back pain. I mean, some say that acute is back pain that's lasted less than four weeks. Some say less than six weeks and others say less than 12 weeks. So I don't know. What do we do? What do you think the duration of acute low back pain is? For the sake of this conversation that we are going to have, we are going to say that acute low back pain is anything less than 12 weeks. Yeah, absolutely. That's a solid plan. So my first question is, there's rock solid evidence that we can make people's low back pain magically get better, right? There's options to help people feel better, maybe? Well, let's talk about that. Many of the trials look at an improvement in pain or improvement in function or a combination of pain and function. But according to the American College of Physicians and all the data that I have read, no large effects were found with any intervention. And that is straight from the American College of Physicians. Sorry to burst your bubble, but nothing seems to really work, or at least it doesn't work with a large effect size. Well, you know what, Andrew? It's been great talking to you today. Thanks for bursting all of our bubbles, (laughs) and we'll never see you again. (laughs) Okay, so let's jump into this a little bit. It's one thing to say that treatments don't create a large effect, but that's different than saying they don't have any effect. And most of my patients with acute low back pain would take a small effect. So what do we mean when you say small versus large? Well, a small improvement is deemed to be about 5 to 10 points on a 100-point scale. Moderate improvements are 10 to 20 points on a 100-point scale, and large would be above that 20 points. Correct. Large would be above that 20 points, but we don't have to worry about that since 
They don't exist. <laughs> they're not out there. But there are some small and maybe even a few moderate effect size improvements. So we could talk about those. Okay, so let's talk about time. Because the best treatment for lots of conditions is the tincture of time. How does that factor in with acute low back pain? Not all back pain, but most, most, most back pain will get better. A paper from CMAJ found at 52 weeks of follow-up, the average improvement in pain scores was around 90%. And even the back pain that seems to be scary initially when it presents usually ends up not being so scary. A paper in 2009 found that among almost 1,200 patients, less than 1% of the patients had serious pathology one year later, despite over 80% of them having a red flag. All right, so that's good to know that things very often get better on their own. Imaging. No discussion on acute low back pain or back pain in general would be complete without talking about imaging because it is super tough for our patients to wait out the pain without wanting imaging. And honestly, I find it hard sometimes to reassure my patients that this will get better with time without pulling that trigger to have a look to see what's going on. Heidi, you are spot on. I think we all have the temptation to want to do imaging. We want to make sure that we're not missing anything, but imaging should be avoided unless it will change your management. Observational studies have shown time and time again that those individuals that get imaging early are more likely to receive opioids and more likely to go to surgery. This might be because their pain is just so much worse, or maybe more likely, we see something that we can't unsee. We may or may not be causing their pain, and we feel obligated to do something that we otherwise would not have done had we not had the imaging report. Yeah, those reports can be quite deceiving because even asymptomatic people have quote-unquote things going on in their spines. You know, like who doesn't have a little bit of spondylolisthesis or some kind of degenerative process? Most people do. If they've lived to be as long as even you, Andrew, most of us have things going on in our spine, even at such a tender <laughs> young age. <laughs> He's just a boy. <laughs> a study in 2015 actually found that among asymptomatic populations, as many as 96% of individuals have disc degeneration. So this is the big reason everyone says, you know, just try to hold off on getting imaging. Because we don't know if that scary looking thing is the cause of the problem or if it's an incidental finding. Treatment. All right, Heidi, I think we are ready for treatment. And I think it is appropriate to start with everyone's favorite the American College of Physicians. Their guideline recommends, and I quote, <clears throat> treatment with superficial heat, massage, acupuncture, or spinal manipulative therapy. Well, that sounds like a reasonable starting point. It does sound like a reasonable starting point, but when you dig into the evidence, then you find the truth. Then you realize that spinal manipulation doesn't beat sham therapy at one month of follow-up. That acupuncture shows a small improvement in pain, but absolutely no improvement in function. That massage doesn't beat sham massage at five weeks. And while superficial heat does give moderate improvement at 16 to 20 points on a 100-point scale, this is really only for the first three or four days. Wah, wah. No, why can't these things work? Why can't my magic bag 
truly live up to its name and deliver a magical heat that will fix back pain. Medication. Let's talk about medications. Which of these should we be given to our patients, Andrew? If any, if any. Well, let's just go right back to the American College of Physicians. In the guidelines, they say if pharmacological treatment is desired, clinicians and patients should select non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, also known as NSAIDs, or skeletal muscle relaxants. Yeah, this seems like a reasonable statement for an organization to make, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the evidence may point us in a different direction. Well, the evidence does point us in a sort of different direction. The evidence says that the American College of Physicians got it about 50% correct. NSAIDs are and should be hands down the first-line treatment for acute nonspecific back pain. When you look at the outcomes, we see a 30% decrease in pain. For functional improvement, the NSAIDs have a number needed treat of six. Hmm, that's better than I was expecting. And will any old NSAID do, or should we be prescribing a particular one or a particular type? Luckily for us, Cochrane has already done this review for us, and they looked at it and they said that no specific NSAID is more effective than any other NSAID. They said that the COX-2 inhibitors showed fewer side effects but are associated with increased cardiovascular risk. So it sounds like we should just pick whatever we're comfortable with that's best suited to our patients and their comorbidities. How about dose? Did uh, anyone weigh in on this? Should we be aiming high or low or somewhere in the middle? Well, I will admit, before doing this deep dive, if someone gave a really good story and they said the back pain's really extreme, then I'd give a higher dose. And they said, well, it's kind of not so much, then I'd give maybe a little lower dose. And that's really how I would also take my NSAIDs. I would wake <laughs> up and I'd kind of say like, well, how, how sore am I today? And then I'd kind of gauge on how much I took. But there was a study in 2019 which looked at emergency department patients with painful conditions, and a majority of these patients had musculoskeletal pain. The patients were randomized to 400, 600, or 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, and then they looked at their pain scores at 60 minutes, and there was no difference between the three groups. So likely 400 milligrams is just fine. Hmm, okay, so NSAIDs are about as much of a slam dunk as we're going to get around here. But what about another drug class, the SNRIs? From what I remember you telling me is some people are also using this in acute low back pain. In the studies done of the SNRIs, the only one with evidence is duloxetine, which appears to reduce back pain by about five points on a 100-point scale. And depending on what you read, you need to have at least a seven or eight-point reduction on a 100-point scale to have any clinical significance. So likely the SNRIs are not beneficial either, or at least not clinically beneficial. Now let's look at the other class of drugs the ACP recommended, the muscle relaxants. How about these? Do they work? Should I stop prescribing the house-shaped little pills for my friends and patients? <laughs> I didn't know that they're house-shaped. It's the one drug I know. People are like, I'm taking this one that looks like a little house. I'm like, oh, you're taking <laughs> Flexeril, Cyclobenzaprine. I had no idea. Okay, well, there we go. Okay. Um, here we go. <laughs> okay, focus, people. Luckily for us, the BMJ just recently did a large systematic review and meta-analysis of this, and they found that muscle relaxers improved nonspecific low back pain by 7.7 points on a 100-point scale. However, per their own analysis, this did not meet clinical significance. Bummer. 
Hmm, <laughs> 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 that tickled. <laughs> Now, I'm always on the lookout for head-to-head studies with various meds, Andrew, because as we know, like, well, great, if a drug beats placebo, whoop-de-doo, but it's nice when we see them being tallied up against each other. And JAMA in 2015 kind of did a study in this vein. They took patients with acute low back pain and gave all of them naproxen, then subsequently also gave them either cyclobenzaprine, the house-shaped medication, oxycodone, or placebo. And guess what? Uh, I'm going to guess that there was no difference. You're right. You're right. After one week of follow-up, there was zero, a zilch, not a difference. So another study that kind of says maybe an NSAID is all we need. It just might be all we really need. (laughs) Indeed. We think it's love, but really it's just a decent NSAID. (laughs) (laughs) What the world needs now is NSAIDs, sweet NSAIDs. We really want to give meds to speed the resolution of acute back pain, but I think the key to acute low back pain is to stay calm and know that it will likely get better with time. Try to avoid imaging unless red flags or the pain is not getting better at four to six weeks later or four to six weeks into follow-up. And the treatment that has demonstrated the largest benefit is the plain old NSAID. No specific NSAID is better than any other, and likely just stick to a low or moderately low dose, and you will be just fine. No need to give a high or extremely high dose of NSAID. Okay, so that is acute low back pain. Now it's time for us to move on to chronic low back pain, which, a reminder, we're defining as pain that lasts longer than 12 weeks. Chronic low back pain. And I will warn you all that if you think the acute low back pain evidence is bad, is less than desirable, and I would agree it it is, then you are going to hate the evidence for chronic low back pain. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm rolling my eyes here. You can't see it, but it's kind of painful. Those extraocular (laughs) motions of disgust, uh, they're working overtime here, but sure, let's hear it. Let's hear the bad evidence. Well, the one thing that universally works on almost every study that's ever been done at all time for chronic low back pain is exercise. Exercise has a number needed to treat of seven for achieving at least 30% improvement in pain or a combination of pain and functional improvement. That is fantastic news. So what kind of exercise should we be recommending? And the answer is... Absolutely anything that the patient will do. It really doesn't matter. Some people say it has to be aquatic therapy. It has to be this or it has to be that. In the evidence, that does not really pan out to be the case. It is whatever exercise the patient will do, whatever exercise they're willing to stick to. Any exercise is better than no exercise. No exercise has proven better than another exercise. And the results are not influenced by funding or the comparative arm. If you can get a patient to exercise, there seems to be a continual benefit. Because we know sometimes it's hard to convince our patients to exercise, Let's talk about medications, because we know a lot of our patients will be asking for them. Sadly, no meds have been found to provide improvement for chronic back pain. NSAIDs, while beneficial up to 12 weeks, there doesn't seem to be benefit from 12 to 16 weeks, and there is no long-term data at this time or no long-term studies. So, exercise is it? That's the only thing that's been proven to work? Well, there is one more thing, and that is spinal manipulative therapy. It has a number needed at a treat of six for achieving at least a 30% improvement in pain or combination of pain 
and function, but there's a catch. What is that catch? I'm curious. The catch is that a majority of the benefit goes away in the better trials. When you do spinal manipulative therapy compared to nothing as the placebo, it does really well. But when you do spinal manipulative therapy compared to a sham spinal manipulative therapy, then a large amount of the benefit seems to go away. This likely means that the benefit of spinal manipulative therapy is the touch, the interaction, the feeling of being stretched, maybe the sound of the crack in their back. It's some cognitive belief or improvement, not the actual spinal manipulative therapy. Hmm. Are you going to recommend it to your patients? A number needed to treat of six to improve chronic low back pain when we have nothing else that works. I mean, we nothing else like ultrasound, TENS, kinesio, acupuncture, acetaminophen, systemic steroids, tricyclic antidepressants, anti-seizure medications. None of these medications beat placebo, and they're not worth taking because we know that they come up with significant harms. I think that prescribing spinal manipulative therapy is a reasonable thing. Okay, so wait a sec there. In that last sentence, you just said that pretty much everything most of us prescribe is junk. For chronic low back pain? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it is. Throw this in the trash. Okay. What about people who have sciatica? It seems to be a different beast. Is there any evidence saying that some of those things work for them? Uh, we would hope. I used to, until I did this deep dive, used to 100% prescribe either pregabalin or gabapentin for those individuals with sciatica. However, I am here to inform the world that they are not beneficial. Well, shoot, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, really. I think that this is often first-line therapy for a lot of providers because we have fallen for the large marketing scam of the drug companies that these are safe and effective medications. However, a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine from 2017 looked at just over 200 patients with sciatica and randomized them to pregabalin 600 milligrams a day or placebo for eight weeks, and there was no difference in pain scores. Okay, that is a massive dose of pregabalin. Like, were patients alert enough to fill in the questionnaires? <laughs> like, that's what I want to know. They probably couldn't rate their pain because they were so sedated. Well, along the vein, I found another paper in 2016 that was a randomized controlled trial of gabapentin for chronic low back pain, and patients were randomized to either placebo or 3,600 milligrams of gabapentin, again, a decent dose. And at 12 weeks, there was no difference in pain or function between gabapentin or placebo. So they couldn't find significant data, and they tried. It looks like they really tried in the study. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It looks like they really, really tried, and they sliced the data every which way. I mean, I had never seen before that study where they looked at the plasma levels of a drug (laughs) to make sure that maybe just a few people had higher plasma levels that maybe it would be more beneficial or... They could have maybe teased out the way to make it work, but they couldn't find a way to make it work no matter what subgroup they looked at. All right. So this has been not inspiring, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe, yeah, this has been kind of depressing, but I I guess we've covered acute and chronic low back pain and we've looked at the subset of back pain with sciatica. So it sounds like all that's left to do is to wrap it up, Andrew. And this task is going to fall to you because you've done the heavy lifting. You've bursted my bubbles and my patient's bubbles. So you need to sum up this EBM back pain chicanery. It's all on you. Oh, let me see if I can put this into a nice present with a little bow on top. (laughs) Summary. Acute back pain 
the treatment of choice is massage, acupuncture, indirect heat. And although they may not beat placebo, they often come with very little harm. The drug of choice, if your patient wants a medication, is an NSAID. During the exam, ask about red flags to make sure that you're not missing something sinister. And unless necessary, hold off on ordering any imaging until follow-up. Follow-up should be ordered four to six weeks later, so that way you can make sure that their back pain is getting better on its own. And remember, do no harm. Not all conditions benefit from medications or therapy, and most acute back pain is going to get better by itself. If the patient with acute low back pain then progresses to chronic back pain, the treatment of choice is exercise. It is also reasonable to recommend spinal manipulative therapy. And last but not least, sciatica. It is frustrating to treat as it has no specific benefit in any type of treatment that we've given, written for, confined, have been through. There is nothing that seems to be beneficial for patients with sciatica. But we need to know that the anticonvulsant medications have harms, and we need to know that they are not proven beneficial. So we should try to avoid prescribing these at all costs because these can become lifelong medications that we continue to prescribe that have no benefit but certainly have harms. Okay. Well, Andrew, I must say that this has been the most excellent and demoralizing review of evidence that we've done thus far. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) As always, I appreciate your sharing your deep dive expertise. And I look forward to hearing from you again before too long on maybe a little bit more of an uplifting topic. Maybe? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe. We'll talk again soon. Okay, maybe, (laughs) maybe not. (laughs) Okay, take care. All right, you too. Okay, do it. Kids do the strangest things. Chris, I have a joke for you. Ready? Oh, I can't wait. Okay. It's wintertime. Dad is inside a house, and his daughter comes limping into the house and says, Dad, my leg hurts. I fell outside on the sidewalk. And he looks out the window and says, I see why. Is that, like, too bad to even make you laugh? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it took me a second. Aren't, like, pediatricians supposed to be the masters of all these, like, horrible kid jokes? We are full of terrible puns. That is true. Okay, well, that's a new one for you, right? It is. I hadn't heard that one before. You can take that one and use it the next time you have a kid that slips and falls. <laughs> I will give you credit. <laughs> but now you're ready for the fact that we are actually seriously going to talk about pediatric limbs. Why are you walking like that? I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. UC Max listeners, if you forget, this is Dr. Chris Merritt, one of my favorite pediatric people, associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Brown University. So welcome back. Happy to be back with you. Thank you so much, Keita. So we're going to talk about the limping child. It's not an uncommon scenario to have a parent or a caregiver bring a child into the urgent care and say they're walking funny or they don't want to walk or they have a limp. And if the kid seems well, otherwise, it may not be a condition that the parent thinks is very serious, but we've got to know the differential to avoid missing some serious things, correct? Yeah, absolutely. As with so many things, you know, it's the needle in the haystack that you have to be on the lookout for, even though most of the time it's just a haystack. Exactly. 
So everybody that's listening, I just want you to keep in mind that your center may have different capabilities in terms of labs or x-rays. And so as you listen, you might have to adapt what the recommendations are, transfer the child to an emergency department to have a more thorough workup if you need to, or you may be able to handle it in your urgent care. And so knowing that differential and whatever workup is necessary is going to really help you make that determination. So before we get into the weeds, what should we keep in mind about normal walking in a child and what it means to have a limp? What is a limp? Yeah, I mean, gait is an interesting thing, right? It's something that evolves over time. As with many things, there's sort of developmental implications that come with it. Mm -hmm. But in general, kids have almost adult gait sometime during toddlerhood or early preschool. And so it's not like a kid walking is all that different from an adult walking, apart from the fact that their steps are shorter and maybe they're a little clumsier, although I'm not sure that that's entirely true <laughs> with all adults. <laughs> right. But the main thing for us is that you've got to watch the walk. You got to see him do it. Yep. Right. And see, like, what is what is this caregiver yeah. talking about? And I've learned over time, like, if they say the kid's limping, even if you're not really sure, like, I would generally err on the side of trusting that caregiver because that's the person who knows that child. Absolutely. Yeah. That parent, right? That's the expert in that kid. And so if they say something's wrong, in this case, almost all the time, there's something, whether or not it's something serious, we'll, we can get to. But yeah, you got to see him walk. Yeah. So I imagine like lots of things in pediatrics, we have to think about different developmental stages and different ages when we're generating a differential for why this child is limping. So what age groups do you generally divide kids into when you're thinking about the limping child? Yeah, I think the most common presentation for a limp that is unexplained happens in toddlers. It happens mm -hmm. in the babies who can, even babies before they can walk independently. So maybe they're like nine or 10 months old and they're able to hold themselves up by holding onto something or cruising mm -hmm. up through maybe two or three or four years old. That, that's the most common time when I see kids who present with a limp. Mm -hmm. Then there's sort of that early school age group of, you know, maybe four or five years old up through, say, about 10 years old. And then after 10, they're basically just little adults. <laughs> You're allowed to say that? Um, no, they take away my pediatrician <laughs> card every time I say it. All right. But I like the way you think about that. And so typically those older children, they're not just going to be coming in with a limp. They're going to be able to say like, my hip hurts or like, I can't move or, you know, something, something like that, that hopefully is going to clue you in. Or I fell. For the most part, I twisted my ankle and now it hurts to walk. Exactly. Although sometimes they won't. I've definitely had kids who did not want to admit that they were jumping on the bed or outside where they, when they weren't supposed to be. Exactly. Or the trampoline when they right. weren't supposed, they to, weren't be. supposed yep. to be. So beware not only the limping, but the lying child. Because <laughs> <laughs> they can be pretty sneaky. They sure can. I didn't do it. Let's start with talking about some diagnoses we should be thinking about in all age groups. So let's start there. And then we're going to zoom in on some age-specific stuff. And then... After that, maybe we can pick a few off the list and talk about them in a little bit of detail. Is that good? Yeah, sounds great. Okay. What are some things that we should be thinking about in any age group? Yeah, I mean, the big bad things, right, are the things that should at least cross our minds. And it doesn't mean you have to go chasing them down, but you know, they should at least cross your minds. Things that I think about are things like septic arthritis, mm -hmm. fractures, osteomyelitis. But really what I love about this chief complaint is that it truly is a head-to-toe differential diagnosis. And so this is where you really have to get a good history, ask about the timing of things, and then watch the kid walk because sometimes limping is ataxia and it's a cerebellar problem in the head. And sometimes it's a hangnail and it's in the toe. So it really is a head-to-toe diagnosis. Yeah, actually, that's, I like the way you put that. That's really great. And I think it's probably really important just to remember that the limp isn't always in the leg. And so 
part of that exam is doing the abdominal exam. Part of that exam might be doing a testicular exam on a boy, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to, because yeah. torsion, geoemergencies, they might be limping because their testicle hurts and they yeah. either can't or won't articulate that. Exactly. Okay, so those are some good things. And I think, and we're always worried about things like, in the rarer things like cancers and bone pain from leukemias and things like that. Mm-hmm. So those are the horrible things that we just have to kind of put in the back of our mind somewhere. They should stay in the yeah. back of your mind because they happen, but it's they're, thankfully they're far less common. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so- What kind of extra things should we be thinking about in the youngest group? Let's talk about the toddlers. Yeah. Toddlers are the, like I said, they're probably the most common age group in which I see patients present with an unexplained limp. And that's for a variety of reasons. Developmental reasons. They, you know, trip and fall all the time. Mm -hmm. And they can't tell you about it, Right. right? They may not have the language to be able to express what hurts exactly or when it started. And so the most common causes for limping in toddlers are musculoskeletal causes, whether that's sort of a strain or a sprain or a fracture. And then there are sort of inflammatory causes. So transient synovitis is probably the most common, but the big thing that you need to be able to differentiate that apart from is septic arthritis. Mm -hmm. And then there are a whole host of other sort of less common things. If you ruled out those common things or you're concerned that there's something else hiding, then you can do a little bit more exploration. Okay. Yeah, I like to think of these in terms of like the most common and the don't miss and then the other things like we talked about needing to do the belly exam, the testicular exam. Exactly. And the other thing that I just feel like I need to mention is that unfortunately, child abuse is a thing that happens Mm. and it's something that sometimes can present this way, whether it's an injury to the extremity or to the belly, et cetera, that, that can present it with a limp. Yeah, that's kind of, that's what I was thinking in terms of the don't miss. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want to miss, obviously, and an appendicitis presents really weirdly in this group too. Like yeah, you're not going to, yeah. so you've got to do the belly exam. You've got to do like a head to toe, like see the skin, like look for other things that might raise your suspicion about something like child abuse. You may wind up needing to do x-rays or something like that. And so, yeah, keeping that differential wide, I think is really the right thing to advise. And if you don't have those capabilities, in the urgent care, it may be a child that you would have to transfer. Yeah, yeah. And running through some of those common and then can't miss things, the common things, like I said, are muscular, tend to be musculoskeletal things. And often there's sort of a vague story of they fell out of the high chair, or they were going down the slide, and then after they got off, they were limping, or maybe they just tripped and fell. Mm. Young kids are allowed to have strains and sprains just like you know older folks are, but they can't really express that very well. And the big thing in that sort of musculoskeletal differential is differentiating between maybe a strain or a sprain, and a fracture type that is really specific to this age group, which is called a toddler's fracture. Mm-hmm. And that's something that can happen with a really relatively minor insult. One of the more classic stories for that is a three-year-old will be going down the playground slide and the sticky sole of their sneaker catches on the side of the slide. And they sort of just gives a little torque to the lower part of their leg. Mm. And they can get a, an oblique fracture through the tibia is the most common location for that. And they'll come up limping. And they might not refuse to walk entirely, but they'll often have some pain with it. I think that's a really important one to know because if you're not aware of that, I mean, anytime you see a kid with a fracture, you should somewhere in the back of your mind be thinking, could this be Mm non-accidental? But that's one where sometimes you can just sort of breathe a sigh of relief and say like, okay, the injury is a common one and it matches the story. And I think that we can just lay this one to rest and deal with the problem itself. Yeah. So if you see a real subtle oblique fracture through a tibia that is in a toddler, you you don't even necessarily have to have a history that, you know, said this is mm. when the injury happened because they can be such seemingly trivial things that can cause that injury. 
The one thing that I would say is that there are metaphyseal fractures that are commonly called bucket handle fractures. And it's just this thin rim of lucency around the metaphysis of the growing bone. And that is almost pathognomonic for child abuse. And it happens when a, a limb, usually in this case, an ankle will be grabbed and twisted and yeah. yanked or twisted or turned. And that's something that, you know, if you see that, you really should that is child abuse until proven otherwise. I'd like to have you back sometime and just talk a little more about signs of non-accidental trauma, child abuse that we might see in the urgent care. That makes me feel like I really, really want to do that with you sometime. Yeah, absolutely. It's really crucial. But moving on with this. So yes, okay. happier things. <laughs> happier. So, we, so we have this wide differential, but those are important things to keep on it. What sort of things should we be thinking about in this, the next group, which I would say probably between like four and 10? And those are the things that tend to be, again, those sort of same musculoskeletal injuries are still common and probably still the most common. But then you start to see some of what we call transient synovitis. That can happen in the toddlers as well, but it may happen in the young school-age kids too. And that's sort of a reactive inflammatory condition that is probably most common in the hip, although it can happen in the knee or other large joints as well. And it's just this sort of achy pain that causes kids to have a limp. Usually there's a history of a preceding viral illness in the previous, you know, the week or two leading up to that. And there's negative x-rays. And if you've got that story of, oh, they had a runny nose and a cold and a fever a week ago or 10 days ago, and they got better, but now they're limping. That's a pretty good story for that. And often these things improve pretty dramatically just with a single dose of an anti-inflammatory like an ibuprofen. There are some labs and things you might want to send that would support that diagnosis and lead you away from septic arthritis? Or do you ever just say like, no, this is probably just, I don't need labs? Yeah, I think in the really well-appearing kid who's not currently febrile, who's able to walk but limps when they do, who doesn't have a big swollen red joint, and they're like, you know, you give them some Motrin and 20 minutes later they're bouncing around the room. I'm fairly comfortable calling that transient synovitis or versus some kind of sprain and, and ending it there. Mm-hmm. But if you saw, you know, the sort of other don't miss things, you know, would be a septic arthritis. And in that case, that might require some lab workup. And those are kids who are more commonly febrile. They're more commonly refusing to bear weight as opposed to just limping. Mm-hmm. And they often have exam findings that support that depending on which joint it is that's involved. Okay. Any other special diagnoses in this age group, four to 10? Again, the GU thing. So, you know, a a fourth grade boy Mm. who doesn't want to talk to you about what's going on downstairs, Mm -hmm. testicular pain is is a common one. The belly pain can still cause it. In my neck of the woods, Lyme disease is our most common cause of monoarticular arthritis. And that I know that's becoming more common in other areas of the country and around the world as well. So that's something to be considering. Okay. Can we talk for a second about leg, calf, perthes? Is it just perthes now? Because they got rid of the leg and the calf. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's in the hip, so that just sort of was confusing. (laughs) All right, so it used to be called leg, calves, perthes, like three hyphenated. Now it's just perthes. Yeah, that happens in these school-age kids as well. And that's sort of an idiopathic avascular necrosis, most commonly of the femoral head. And that happens because evolution is not perfect and the blood supply to that femoral head is not always sufficient. And you get this odd avascular necrosis and it can really be insidious in onset. So it can be like a little bit of a limp that just gets worse and worse and worse. And it sometimes is so insidious that parents and caregivers kind of just think, well, it's just part of how they are Mm. because it's been going on for several months. 
Mm-hmm. And there's some pretty classic x-ray findings. Yeah, you see sort of this shaggy kind of like almost shrinking of the head of the femur when you'll okay. see that on pelvis x-rays or hip films. And then the other thing that goes along with that in this age group, usually in slightly the older end of this age group, maybe like 9, 10 or sort of pre-adolescence, is the slipped capital femoral epiphysis, skiffy. Skiffy. You got it. Skiffy. Tell us a little bit about that. Now we're getting into the, this is why the over 10 crowd are not little adults. Yeah, I guess you're right. Adults don't get this, but. And this typically happens kind of, like I said, in that, er- like maybe in the pre-adolescence, but usually the, the peak is in the early adolescence. It's mm-hmm. more common in kids who have a higher BMI, so in overweight kids. And essentially it's this series of micro fractures sort of through the physis of the head of the femur and that epiphysis, the head of the femur, just sort of slips off of the physis. And it, mm-hmm. you know, we, we commonly describe that as sort of the ice cream falling off the cone and it happens relatively. It can be insidious, but often I find that it's like, oh, my hip has been hurting. And then all of a sudden it hurt a lot. And that's where, that's where they come in. I always, when I was, you know, doing board review and things like that, I would always get Perthes and Skiffy mixed up. Yeah, yeah. But Skiffy sounds a little bit like slippery, not really. But like, I, in my head, I made it sound like that. You got it. And if you remember that it's a slipped epiphysis as opposed to that avascular. Yeah, well, you would have to remember what Skiffy stands for. <laughs> You'd have to do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's what I think of as the big one in like the really over 10 crowd. Yeah. That's not what we mentioned before, all this whole wide differential that we have to keep in mind. Plus, these kids are more active now. They might be doing sports. They might have like overuse injuries, stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We see things like osgood schlatter disease, which is, you know, that overuse injury where they have pain really and tenderness usually at the proximal tibia. All right. Take home lessons. So any parting thoughts for us in the urgent care when we're evaluating a child that comes in with a limp or pain with walking? Yeah, I think it's so much, as with anything, but especially in this, it's so much about the history. You know, how suddenly did this come on or has it been kind of an insidious onset? What kind of other symptoms go along with it? So are they having fever or redness or swelling of a joint that might push you towards looking for a septic joint or something like that? Or Mm -hmm. they've got easy bruising or something that might make you more worried about something like leukemia. Mm -hmm. Watching the kid walk, is this pain with ambulation or is it weakness or is it ataxia or discoordination or something like that Mm -hmm. can help you arrive at the diagnosis? Because often, especially in the younger kids, you're like, they're limping, but I don't know where it hurts. Mm-hmm. So in a you know one-year-old who won't walk, but they'll crawl, you can often get a pretty good sense that, well, maybe it's the lower part of the leg. So you know from the knee up, mm-hmm. they're okay, but from the knee down, they seem to have pain and that sort of can help guide you. Yes. And then watching how they hold their extremity when they're at rest. So if it's a hip and they're, ex- you know, they're externally rotated and slightly flexed at the hip, that can, can point you towards a hip as opposed to a knee or a tibia or an ankle. Right. In a kid that won't bear weight at all and they hold their hip like that, I'm always worried about septic arthritis. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to be. Because it's sort of the position of comfort when there's something taking up space in the joint. Absolutely. And if that's a concern, then that's a kid who probably ought to be referred for further evaluation, imaging, and treatment. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of these conditions, I think this idea of it being a head-to-toe examination is really important because, as you said, like, yeah, if it's Mm -hmm. ataxia, that looks different than a child that you're trying to get to walk and just is sort of favoring the foot. And my favorite story about this is that I (laughs) had a resident I was working with who was sort of puzzling over this toddler who wouldn't walk and then, you know, had a very wide differential. And I went and I saw the baby 
and picked the kid up, put it on the ground, sort of said, like, you know, he was trying to put his foot down, wouldn't. And then I looked at the bottom of the foot and he had a splinter. Yeah. So I looked like the genius attending that I was like, aha, I've solved the problem. You're a genius. <laughs> I've seen young kids who wouldn't walk because their shoes didn't fit. Yeah. Yes, right? They'll walk without the shoes. You're like, he only walks barefoot. <laughs> well. Right, yeah. I mean, these are all, it's amazing, like yeah. how it could be like a nothing and it could be a terrible, horrible thing. And I think just being aware, I know that for each of these diagnoses, we could go into like in more detail some other time talking about what labs, what x-rays, how to get the views, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the most important thing is just knowing that there's a wide differential. You have to think about things that aren't the hip, you know, or aren't the foot, and then being comfortable enough in your exam and history taking that you're going to be able to kind of hone in on those things and to have that heightened sense of awareness when something doesn't add up and you've got to start thinking about other more serious things, including non-accidental trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just important to remember, you know, this is a really common complaint and the common causes are the by far the most common causes. That's why they're the common causes. So the broad differential is important to know that, like exactly like you said, know that it's there, look for the common things and be a little bit familiar with what causes things at different ages and you won't go wrong. Thank you again, Chris. I always love talking to you. Always a pleasure. Thanks. I'll have a new joke for you next time. Oh, I can't wait. I'm sure you can't wait. I see I why. See why. <laughs> Talk to you later. Down, down. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all. This is Vanessa Cardi here, and we're back for Rural Medicine. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by a new guest. This is Dr. Lewis Yu. And uh, he is joining me from California today, but that's not where he always works, I don't believe. Lewis, nice to meet you, and tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm very excited. I'm a longtime listener. I trained at UCSF, graduated in 2019, and really throughout all of the pandemic, I've been taking quite a bit of my time to work in the Indian Health Services. So I work at a variety of hospitals with different levels of staffing different capabilities um, within the IHS. And I do so through a locums company called Pinnacle EMG. Side note, they're the only native-founded public benefit corporation providing staffing for the Indian Health Services. So where did this particular story take place? Yeah, let me set the scene. So it's the end of December 2021. We're in Shiprock, New Mexico, which is located in Navajo Nation. Northern Navajo Medical Center is located in the northwest corner of New Mexico. And we're at about 5,000 feet elevation. The population is around 8,000 people. And the landscape is beautiful, red rock and desert with scattered forests. I remember the weather had been a real challenge over the past few days. And we had bed shortages as well as boarding COVID patients on BiPAP and high-flow nasal cannula. And this was the beginning of the Omicron wave. So Northern Navajo Medical Center is over six hours from Phoenix by ground and another six hours to Salt Lake City in good weather. San Juan Regional Medical Center in Farmington is a little over a half an hour drive and accepts a lot of our dialysis, STEMI, and trauma transfers. And having this large, capable medical center nearby was definitely a luxury by rural EM standards. Okay, so you've set the scene, you've uh, set the time as well, the beginning of the Omicron wave. It sounds a little bit concerning. I'm a little bit nervous already. So um, tell us the story. What happened next? At around 10 p.m. Sunday, the day after Christmas, we were preparing to sign out. Our hospital has double physician coverage during the day with single coverage at night. 
and we had two of our rooms occupied by COVID patients on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. My colleague was trying to wrap up his last patient when she developed large volume bloody emesis. The patient immediately dropped her pressures and looked to be quite sick. At this moment, we received a call from EMS for syncope in a 15-year-old that was satting 79% on room air. Per report, the patient had had cold symptoms for the past three days, and sometime in the evening, he had walked into his grandmother's room and collapsed. He had no known past medical history, was not taking any medications that EMS knew of, and his grandparents were on their way in a separate vehicle. On arrival, the patient was on non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute. His oxygen saturation was 79 to 85%. He was alert, but he appeared a bit tired. His triage vital signs, temperature was 96.6, blood pressure 103 over 59, heart rate was 134, and his respiratory rate was 26. He had notable central cyanosis and clear lungs on pulmonary exam. You could tell he was quite nervous, but he's putting on a good face. As we moved him into a room and RT placed him on high-flow nasal cannula, I collected some more history. He had been having sore throat and runny nose for the past three days, but this evening he had become very tired and weak. At around 1600, he woke up and could barely lift his head. He finally was able to drag himself out of bed, and he told me that he was unsure how he managed to walk to his grandmother's room. And that's when he collapsed. He denies any chest pain, but did endorse some shortness of breath. He had a mild, generalized headache, and his whole body felt heavy. He denied any past medical history. He denied taking any medications, and he denied any recent procedures. He denied any family history that he knew of, and he denied having any childhood heart conditions. All right, it's time to do that mental thing. So you got a kid, very hypoxic, syncopal, in the middle of a COVID epidemic. And he had viral symptoms. So if you said, this is just bad COVID, okay, he's 15 and you're not supposed to get that sick, but you know, some kids do, you would be done, right? But this is the problem when everybody's got the same disease. There's still other diseases out there. So what else could this be? Ask yourself the question, what else could this be? Sick, syncopal, hypoxic, central cyanosis, kid with a cold. Are you thinking about it? What you talking about? Let's hear about this interesting case. At this point, two things were pointing towards his eventual diagnosis. The central cyanosis was remarkable, and his oxygen saturation wasn't improving with high-flow oxygen delivery. I thought that he was acting like a methemoglobinemia patient, but at this point, I had no idea as to why he would have this problem. Given his central cyanosis, I was also concerned about possible hemorrhagic shock, massive PE, or late presentation of a congenital heart defect. Venipuncture provided another clue. His blood was chocolate brown. Interestingly, his oxygen saturation was measuring in the mid-70s, and typically, wavelength-based oxygen saturation is 85% in methemoglobinemia due to the methemoglobin's high absorption at both the oxy and deoxyhemoglobin spectrums. Regardless, the SpO2 reading is always inaccurate, and it tends to give a falsely elevated number. So before labs were even sent, I ordered 100 milligrams of methylene blue. His hemoglobin was 17.6, bicarb was 11, and he had a notable anion gap of 27. His methemoglobin percentage was 72% which means that he functionally dropped his hemoglobin from 17.6 to 4.9, likely over the course of an afternoon. We had a diagnosis, but I was still scratching my head. Did he have a congenital condition? What was I missing? Acquired methemoglobinemia is by far the most common presentation, frequently from medications like lidocaine, benzocaine, nitrates, rifampin, or dapsone. It can also be seen with the use of recreational drugs like poppers, 
And in young children and neonates, you can see methemoglobinemia from nitrate-contaminated well water and gastroenteritis, respectively. Later, I did some reading about congenital methemoglobinemia, which comes in two forms. And one of them, the cytochrome B5 reductase version, is more common in Navajo and Eskimo populations. However, once the grandparents arrive, the story really began to come into focus. So what did you learn from the grandparents? Is there actually a history of this in the family? No history of this in the family. And I asked them repeatedly in as many ways as I possibly could. Has anyone died suddenly for an unexplained cause? And really, there was nothing to suggest that there was a family or hereditary condition. What they were able to tell me was that around 1200, the patient was given Vicks VapoCool sore throat spray. A few sprays helped his symptoms. So later, at around 1300, he found the bottle and drank about 30 cc's of the spray. The main active ingredient is 5% benzocaine. Well, that's not good. That's why they tell you not to drink it. It's a spray. Don't drink it. Exactly. Unfortunately, the, the top comes off pretty easily. All he had to do was unscrew it. All right. I know I was joking there, but of course, this is a terrible situation. Terrible, because this young man's health is now critically, critically threatened. But at least you've got the diagnosis, right? Like, you know what you're dealing with. And you've even already asked for the antidote. You know this is methemoglobinemia, and you've asked for the methylene blue. So things are okay. So at midnight, the pharmacy called me back. They couldn't find the methylene blue. So this went from being an interesting case to a terrifying case pretty quickly. I immediately started to think of other things that I could potentially do. Could I de decontaminate the gut? Probably not. This was likely too far out to have any effect. And whatever he had imbibed, he now had in his bloodstream. And decontaminating the, the gut with activated charcoal would probably have no benefit or effect. Could I use an alternative treatment? I called the toxicology center, of course, and they didn't have any viable recommendations. We had no access to hyperbaric oxygen. No one in the hospital had ever done exchange transfusion before. And we also didn't have high-dose vitamin C, which is another option that works a lot slower than methylene blue. And then finally, we had to figure out what we were gonna do. And thankfully, if you've worked in a rural emergency medicine or emergency medicine in general, you know that people are always down to figure out a creative solution to new problems, and that's exactly what we did. So I calmly asked the pharmacist to keep looking and started making some phone calls. My colleague had stabilized his crashing GI bleed patient at that point and joined me in the search for the right combination of transportation, antidote, and an accepting facility. By just after midnight, we had found a flight team that could reroute to Farmington, pick up the methylene blue that they had in stock, and then meet our patient for transport to the accepting hospital in Salt Lake City. Then we got some more bad news. The flight was delayed due to weather. Expected arrival time was roughly 2 a.m. Meanwhile, the patient was beginning to feel more fatigued. He was still communicative, but he complained of some worsening shortness of breath. He now had an expiratory wheeze on pulmonary exam. He was started on BiPAP with one inline duoneb, which he tolerated well. We repeated the VBG. If he fatigued more, I decided that I would need to intubate him. And I reviewed the procedure and the indications with the patient and his grandparents. I can imagine this would be a pretty difficult conversation to have. Just earlier that day, this young patient only had a cold, basically. He had a runny nose, he had a sore throat, he had a cold. And now he was in a critical situation where they were going to have to make a critical decision. This sounds like it's getting more and more hairy. 
I don't envy you. So what happened next? At 1 a.m., the pharmacy called. They had found the methylene blue. Relief. Where was it? Good question. I don't know, but the bag was quite dusty. But within a few minutes, we had delivered the, the first dose at around 1.15 a.m. Thankfully, the patient did quite well. After his first dose of methylene blue, his methemoglobin percentage dropped to 17%. His oxygen saturations rose, and he pinked up quite a bit, so his color improved. At that time, the flight team arrived, and he had an uneventful transfer to Salt Lake City Children's Hospital, where he spent a day and a half in the hospital for observation. His methemoglobin percentage dropped to 1% after the second dose. And he did not have any complications from the medication. He was discharged into the custody of his grandparents in 48 hours and was back on the reservation within three days. Wow, that's quite the story. Quite the lucky young man that the pharmacist was able to find the methylene blue, but also that you had used all your resources to try and come up with an alternative if that hadn't been found, if you hadn't been able to locate the medications. Lessons learned. When you look back on this case, what are some of the things that um, really stand out in terms of teaching points or things that you'll take away? In rural emergency medicine, one thing we need to consider that we don't in uh, our typical urban jobs is that weather has a huge impact on what you're able to do and that your ability to transfer is really the most critical part of your job because many times our hospitals don't have the resources that are needed to take care of our critically ill patients. We can stabilize But ultimately, what we need to do is get our patients out. So being aware of weather issues, geography issues, and having both a plan A, B, and C in terms of transportation is critically important. I think that's an excellent point. If anyone has listened to some of my rural med stories, weather almost always comes into it, which I'm sure makes some people roll their eyes because they're like, oh, look, it's snowing again and the plane can't come. But, you know, it's not always snow. Sometimes it's fog or rain. And it really really takes up a huge amount of mental energy when you're actually dealing with these cases, when you're having these weather reports literally thrown at you and you're saying, okay, I have to readjust like because you're constantly having to adjust things. And you think you set yourself up in your mind that, okay, I've got this patient here for two hours. I can do this, this, and this, and that's probably going to buy them enough time until they get into the plane and, you know, to definitive care. But then suddenly that is four hours and that affects your staffing that affects your ability to see other patients in the emergency department you know you said you're single coverage overnight so it has this incredible knock-on effect and it's not just that one patient that's being affected it's a whole department that's being affected and of course your staff as well so i think that's a really important point something else that you mentioned that i thought was really key was early on when you said you know when you considered giving activated charcoal and often in rural cases when we're remote and we're sort of desperate we will throw everything at the patient that we can, you know, like you give them the antibiotics, you give them the antivirals, you do everything you can, even if you don't necessarily know exactly what is going on. But those acts can sometimes distract us from the actual case as well. And I think it was really great that you realized so quickly that this is too many hours out for this to be useful. And this is going to be an intervention that, you know, isn't totally benign. We've got someone who might aspirate. You don't want to have that added complication thrown in. And so sometimes it's good to just, as many people say, stand back and do nothing. And you know, just think for another minute or two, because that can sometimes actually really be the saving grace. Another thing that I talk about a lot is how it can be very difficult when you're the doctor in the remote location, the rural location, and you've got a patient, you know you need to get them out. But in many institutions and systems, you can't transfer that patient until you have an accepting physician's name. Even in those cases where it's blindingly obvious, like there's an ax through the guy's head, you know this person's going to be accepted. 
but you still need to have spoken to someone to get the official name so that it can be written down and then you can call for the transfer. Did you encounter any problems in terms of getting the transfer organized or was it smooth sailing? And how is the reception on your receiving ends? Often people who get calls from remote doctors are incredibly helpful because they realize where we are and what we're dealing with. But sometimes, you know, you're on hold for 20 minutes and you're sitting there going like, I don't have 20 minutes. So I'm curious to know how your experience with the transferring process went. So in this particular case, I, I got the patient accepted to a children's hospital in Phoenix. However, due to weather coming in from the Southwest, we had no actual transfer time. So despite having the accepting physician, I had an unknown ETA in terms of when we could actually transfer the patient. Given that he was critically ill at the time, I didn't accept this and continued to make phone calls until I had eventually contacted Salt Lake City Children's Hospital, which also accepted the patient, but had a lane of acceptable weather for transportation. So I could then have both an accepting physician and an actual timeline for transferring the patient. Yeah, it's amazing how often you get it all set up and you think, oh, the transport's all squared away. And then you realize, nope, nope, that plane, we don't even know when they're going to come. So I have to start calling other people. And then plane companies get upset. And then ambulance companies get upset. And you're like, sorry, but I've got to put the patient's needs first. And you know, you might be booking things and then canceling because uh, life changes, the patient's situation changes. Another thing that I thought quite a bit about and read about later was the indications to intubate a patient with methemoglobinemia. Obviously, they're having an issue with oxygenation, but it's not the ones we're used to. So their hemoglobins essentially are not letting go of the oxygen that they have in their blood. So intubating doesn't really necessarily get you any more oxygenation. But for a patient who's really tiring out and unable to keep up with their own respirations or maintain a mental status, that would be the indication to intubate. And in this case, we're getting pretty close. Thankfully, we got the antidote in time. Yeah, that's uh, one of those processes where I think if it was on TV, they'd be like, intubate the patient right away. But it's like, I'm not necessarily going to fix things with this. And you are adding an extra layer of complexity to that patient now. You might then not be able to use the same transport companies. Some companies won't take an intubated patient. You're also making different demands on your staff that you have there. If you have an RT, that's great. But if you're in a place like where I work, where we don't have an RT, that means that there's a nurse has to be at the bedside, constantly adjusting the ventilator and making sure that everything there is okay. All of these decisions have downstream effects, as I said before. I am so glad that this young man did so well. I am so glad that he came into your emergency department where you were able to so quickly diagnose him. And I'm very glad that the pharmacist uh, found the antidote. That's a, a very, very important part of this story. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll join us again with more stories. And until then, take care. Thank you. Primary care medical abstracts with Ken and Steve. Welcome to the February edition of PCMA. Joining me, as always, is the amazing critical appraiser himself, Steve Brown. Very happy to be here. Great to see you, Ken. People get ready for me mispronouncing a whole bunch of drug names this month. There are so, so many. <laughs> oh, it's going to be epic. Epic. Ten papers. That's why, I don't know if you noticed, but sometimes some of these papers, I pick non-pharmaceutical papers 
Just so I wouldn't have to pronounce a drug name. Right. Like you know how to pronounce yoga already. Self-preservation, my friend. Self-preservation. All right. So uh, we'll just dive into this and uh, I'll mispronounce the first name. Paper one. Abstract number one. Terzepatide once weekly for the treatment of obesity. New England Journal of Medicine 2022. Steve, I thought this might be a good way to start February. After all the holiday eating at Thanksgiving and all those holidays in December, I thought, yeah, this is a good one. So, yep. The objective of this trial was to determine the efficacy and safety of terzepatide, a novel glucose-dependent insulin-tropic polypeptide and glucon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist in people with obesity. Whew. All right. This was an industry-funded, multinational, so there was nine countries involved, multi-site, 119, double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. They included a population of adults who had to have a BMI of 30 or more, or if they had a BMI of 27, but at least one weight-related complication, except for diabetes. Now, the intervention was they either gave 5, 10, or 15 milligrams of weekly terzepatide subcutaneously, and they started off at 2.5 milligrams, and then escalated monthly. So every month, they sort of titrated up to get to that 5, 10, or 15 milligram target dose. Or they got these placebo injections for 72 weeks. Now, everybody received lifestyle interventions, which was, you know, healthy meal advice and get out and exercise 150 minutes a week. Co-primary endpoints. Oh, there's some holes showing up, some weaknesses in this study already. Co-primary endpoints were the percentage change in weight from baseline and weight reduction of 5% or more. They had a number of secondary disease-oriented outcomes. We're not going through those. So they got over 2,500 people with a mean weight of 105 kilos. So that would work out to about 231 pounds. Now their mean BMI was 38. The mean age was 45 years. And just over two thirds were female. The percentage change in weight had a dose response. So if you're at the lowest dose, five milligrams, it was about a 15% weight loss, went up to about 20% for 10 milligrams, and 21% weight loss with the 15 milligrams or the highest dose. And if you looked at the placebo group, they also lost weight, but it was only 3% of their weight. The second primary outcome of at least 5% weight reduction was in the 90% range roughly for the various doses. And about a third of the patients in the placebo group lost 5% of their weight because they were getting lifestyle modifications over the same time period. The most common adverse events were GI-related, so gastrointestinal being mild to moderate in severity, and it usually occurred when they upped the dosage. Now, treatment discontinuation, which is always a good sign of tolerability, only about 1 in 20 or about 5% in the actively treated group said, you know, I'm out, I'm tapping out, it's too much for me. So I thought this was very encouraging publication claiming an effective treatment for obesity because we know that it is just rampant in our society, obesity. So it was interesting to see such an effective treatment because usually you don't see that magnitude of effect and it usually wears off. But we should be cautiously optimistic given the typical arch of medical research, specifically early studies 
usually show this large effect size with few adverse events. And then as it rolls out and it gets out into the wild, we find eh, it's not as effective and there seems to be a lot more adverse events than were originally reported. The sponsor, Eli Lilly, designed this trial. They oversaw the conduct of this trial. And the researchers had to sign a confidentiality agreement. That always gets my skeptical radar going off. But at the end of the day, this was pretty impressive, Steve. Yeah, and I think another thing that makes me feel a little more reassured is that this is apparently now a class effect because there's pretty good evidence on semaglutide also. So I think the GLP-1s, I think these are the most impressive weight loss medications we've ever seen. And, you know, you only mentioned the 5% weight loss, but the number needed to treat to lose 10 or even 25% of weight was like two and three. Like those are very low numbers needed to treat. And you mentioned the number needed to harm of about 20 to discontinue the drug. Definitely you have to prepare your patients for some nausea. Number needed to harm five for nausea. It's hard to know what to do with the fact that you know, this is drug industry sponsored and made because most studies are four out of five. But I think this, like you say, is very promising. Yeah. And believe me, financial conflicts of interest in pointing them out isn't an attempt to invalidate it. It is just a data point to consider when reviewing any publication to say, well, we know that there can be some bias or potential bias that could impact the results or the interpretation of the results. So just be cautious. That's all. Just be cautious. And I'm, I'm glad you said be prepared because that's actually part of my bottom line. Bottom line. Be prepared for patients to be coming in and requesting terzepatide to help them lose weight. Paper two. Abstract number two is the prevalence and characteristics of adrenal tumors in an unselected screening population, a cross-sectional study from Annals of Internal Medicine. One of my favorite words in all of medicine, Ken, is incidentaloma. It's so good. Yes. <laughs> in the adrenals, an incidentaloma is a nodule that's found on imaging. It should be at least one centimeter in size, and it's a patient with no adrenal-related symptoms. And we continue to do more and more imaging tests over the past decades, and so actually the rates of adrenal incidentalomas have increased tenfold in the past 20 years. So this is definitely going to come up in your practice. But most studies of the rates of the masses have been performed retrospectively. So these authors conducted a cross-sectional study of over 25,000 people in China that were seeking an annual health check to look at the prevalence and characteristics of adrenal tumors. All patients getting the annual health checks were offered adrenal CT scans, which apparently this was IRB approved. Uh, I'm not sure it would be in the U.S., and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't sign up for that study. But then they evaluated the masses that they found for both malignancy risk and adrenal function, because you worry about cancer in these lesions, but you also worry about endocrine functioning masses. So the results, they found 351 adrenal tumors, that's 1.4%. However, if you look at patients that are older, over 65, 3.2% of those patients had an adrenal tumor or about 1 in 31 scans. 96% of the tumors were adrenal cortical adenomas, 4% were another benign lesion, and none were malignant. 
They were only able to follow up 200 plus of the adrenal incidentalomas to look at the hormonal function. So they only followed up 63% of the masses, which is a little bit of a flaw. But most of them, 69% were non-functioning. 19% of them had some kind of cortisol autonomy, which was only 0.3% of the total patients. And 12% had primary aldosteronism, and none were pheochromocytomas. We don't really know what the clinical significance of this is. Like, for example, we don't know if this decreased morbidity because we detected them earlier. Probably not. I would definitely not have signed up for the study given the CT radiation exposure. But I really do think it helps for us to see that incidentally discovered lesions are likely non-functioning. And also useful to see this in a healthy screening population because when we do CTs in the hospital, they're more likely to be done in older patients with symptoms or maybe sicker. And that might overestimate the number and the you know, harms of the incidentalomas. I like the fact that you wouldn't have signed up for this study. I wouldn't have signed up for this study either. And it made me think back to the early 1980s when I was a young teenager working at a research lab and they just installed their first CT scanner in the hospital. And so they were wandering around looking for volunteers to <laughs> sign up for this research study to scan people's brains. And I, and I did not sign up. I mean, that may explain a few things if I had have signed up, but I did not sign up to have my brain irradiated back when I was an early teenager. Come on, Ken, what are you, scared? <laughs> well, you don't want to radiate your brain? It's the new drug Huey's been talking about. Anyways, it made me think of that. Some of the issues uh, you mentioned, there certainly could be differences between those who volunteer or those who didn't. They're not going to get Steve and I enrolled, so maybe we're different than the people that did get enrolled. And again, more than a third didn't get further testing. So what do we do with that, right? We have no idea. We've got a huge chunk of data that we go, yeah, what happened to those people? That they identified something, but they didn't follow them up with further testing. So I'm not exactly sure what to do with this. Bottom line. Adrenal incidentalomas are found in 1.4% of CT scans and are mostly non-cancerous and not hormonally significant. Paper three. Abstract number three, the effectiveness of yoga therapy for migraine treatment, a meta-analysis of randomized control trials published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2022. And this is sort of a follow-up to abstract number one, which reviewed an expensive pharmaceutical option for a common problem, obesity. And now we have a non-pharmaceutical treatment for another very common problem, migraine headaches. And I don't want us to always come across as we're always pushing pills on people. So the object of this study was to explore the efficacy of yoga therapy for patients with migraines. They followed that PRISMA guideline, so that's a good check mark to have right at the top when you're reading a research article that is a systematic review. They followed those preferred reporting standards for meta-analyses, and they searched databases looking for randomized control trials of yoga to treat people with migraines. Now, they were only able to find and include six trials of 445 people. So right away, you know, there's a small number of studies with a small number of participants. Yeah. Five of them were out of Asia and only one in the U.S. Now, when they looked at yoga therapy, it was associated with a decrease in people's pain intensity, a decrease in headache frequency, 
a decrease in headache duration, and then they had a couple of scoring systems that it also showed improvement with yoga. There are many issues with this systematic review and meta-analysis that really come down to GIGO, and that's garbage in, garbage out. Having a few small studies reporting a tiny little effect size for their primary subjective outcome of pain intensity with high heterogeneity. I mean, an I-square of 94%, should you have really combined these studies together and meta-analyzed them statistically, mathematically, or should you have just done a narrative review? Five out of the six came from Asia. No sham group for the yoga, and it was unblinded. So it would have been much better if everyone in this randomized control trial were blinded to, hey, what's the purpose of the study? What's the hypothesis here? And if they had some kind of like sham group, some kind of exercise or stretching group that they could have used. And I suspect that this tiny little effect size documented, they were more likely due to relaxation and stress reduction and less likely due to a specific effect of yoga. I couldn't tell if this was both a preventive and an acute study. Were they, were they saying like your headaches start, so go do some yoga? So this is the, this is the part of the heterogeneity. The study designs were, were different throughout right. the six studies. Yeah. yeah. So this for me is enough that if a patient came to me and you know, were active in yoga or they asked about yoga and they had migraines, I would say there's some possibility that regular yoga could decrease your migraine attacks, especially if that person didn't really want to take medicines. I think this would be worth trying, but I agree there's nothing in this study that tells you that it's better than anything else. And we certainly don't know how it does compared to, especially for an acute attack compared to like the triptans, for example, which are quite effective. But I actually, I thought this was useful. Like you say, it is a bunch of little crappy studies, but it's useful for me to be able to say, okay, if a patient asked about this, I would say it's worth a try. Yeah. So you bring up a really good point. And this is the evidence-based medicine model of the three pillars. I mean, if the evidence that we have, the literature that we have is weak, low quality, not very convincing, then you need to use your clinical judgment and talk to the patients about what they prefer. So this is, this is the issue. I don't want to see a study like this used as a stick to say, thou shalt do yoga to treat or prevent your migraines. I mean, the evidence isn't enough there to be waving a finger at someone going, well, you know, the reason you're having so many migraines or the way your migraines are so bad is because you're not doing yoga. Do yoga. The flip side of that is, you know what? If you like yoga, do yoga. Yeah. Sure. You know, and if you enjoy it and you have less stress and it helps you and you feel better because of it, fantastic. It also doesn't compare in the studies to like mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, going for a walk. And so I guess in theory, yoga is kind of a combination of mindfulness and, you know, like let's say stretching, but we have no idea if mindfulness alone or going for a walk or, or stretching would be just as effective. Bottom line. If you like yoga, do yoga. It may decrease your stress and help your migraines. Paper four. Abstract number four is the contraceptive efficacy and safety of the 52 milligrams levonorgestrel IUD for up to eight years. This is the Mirena extension trial. 
continuation publication. This is from American Journals of Obstetrics and Gynecology from September 2022. This is a pretty big change in the last couple of years. In August 2021, the FDA approved the Mirena IUD for seven years of pregnancy prevention, up from five. And then just a year later, August 2022, the FDA approved the Mirena IUD for eight years. And so this paper publishes the results of the Mirena extension trial, studying the efficacy of the Mirena IUD for five years and beyond, up to eight years. It's a multi-center trial in the United States. They enrolled existing users of the 52 milligrams levonorgestrel-releasing IUD. Patients were age 18 to 35. They had to have the system in place for 4.5 to 5 years. And the authors looked at both efficacy and harms of this ongoing use of the IUD. They had 223 participants that completed 8 years. It is highly effective in preventing pregnancy. There are only two pregnancies that occurred with the device in place. One was in an undetermined location and resolved spontaneously, and one was an ectopic pregnancy that resolved with methotrexate. There was a pretty big decrease in bleeding. Half of the patients had infrequent or no bleeding, although they didn't really design the study specifically to address the IUD as a treatment for heavy bleeding. Of the patients who wanted to become pregnant, they discontinued the IUD. 77% of them were able to become pregnant in the first year after removal, and patients were highly satisfied with this, 99%. So this is the evidence that Mirena is effective and safe for up to eight years. I don't know if they're continuing this, or in a year we'll be talking about 10 years or 12 years, or if eight is the final answer. It's interesting. We've been talking about how to pronounce drug names for years on this show, and you call it Mirena. And as of today, I, you know, I've still been calling it Marina. Oh, okay. And, and maybe it's the American way of saying it and the Canadian way of saying it. But listening to you call it uh, Mirena, I'm like, hey, Macarena. <laughs> yeah. And so I share your question about, will in February 2024, we be reviewing the nine-year follow-up? In 2025, we'll be reviewing the 10-year follow-up. When will it end? I don't know, but it's an effective strategy and patients really like it. Bottom line. The Mirena IUD, 52 milligrams of levonorgestrel releasing system, is effective for up to eight years and is now FDA approved for this duration. And because people can't see us, I'm dancing the Macarena just to see if I can throw Steve off for his <laughs> bottom line. That's the kind of co-host I am. Paper five. Abstract number five, alcohol use and burden for 195 countries and territories, 1990 to 2016, a systematic analysis of the global burden of disease study, 2016. And this was published in The Lancet 2018. And I'm highlighting that because this study is a little older than what we normally include. We usually look for something published in the last year. But when this came up in my feed and there was a lot of discussion recently about alcohol consumption during COVID-19, I thought it would be a really good thing to include in the PCM database because I searched the database and couldn't find that it had been covered in the pantheon of shows on MRAP. So the object of this study was to estimate alcohol use and alcohol-attributed death and disability-adjusted life years. So in this study, they searched 
almost 700 data sources of individual and population level alcohol consumption. And then they had close to 600 prospective and retrospective studies on the risk of alcohol use from 195 locations over that 26-year time period from 1990 up to 2016. And as of 2016, about a third of adults defined as 15 and older reported being current consumers of alcohol. Now, it was more in men than women, 25% female, 39% male, totaling 2.4 billion people worldwide currently drinking alcohol. Now, the mean amount of alcohol consumed was also interesting. It was 0.7 of a standard drink per day for females and 1.7, so more than double standard drinks per day for males. Now, the prevalence of alcohol consumption was highest, greater than 70%, for locations where there was a high sociodemographic index, or SDI. And the lowest consumption of alcohol prevalence was in the low to middle SDI locations, less than 20%. So a big divide there. Alcohol use, the seventh leading risk factor for both death and disability-adjusted life years. They dichotomized into under 50 and over 50 years of age. So when you looked at the under 50 years of age, the alcohol-attributed deaths was associated with things like tuberculosis, so TB, self-harm, and road injuries. And then when you got above 50 years of age, the number one alcohol-attributed deaths were associated with cancer. And the final thing that they pulled out of this data was, what's the number of standard drinks per week that minimizes harm across health outcomes? Steve, I can give you a hint. It was a nice round number. Yes. Zero. (laughs) So these are really, and I have to say it, sobering statistics. (laughs) Uh, But I had to do it. There are several limitations to the study that call into the question, you know, the accuracy and precision of these point estimates. But I don't think they invalidate the fact that alcohol consumption is a leading risk factor for global burden of disease and significant health loss. Now, the authors did these adjustments for things like how many alcohol sales were being considered for tourism and unrecorded consumption. But these adjustments, they really may not be able to fully ascertain unrecorded consumption or illicit alcohol production. And it's also interesting that those locations with the highest socio-demographic index had the highest alcohol use. And I agree with the authors that society really should have a conversation about whether lowering the overall population level consumption of alcohol is something that we want to consider. Yeah, it really implies that from a population perspective, every, you know, bottle or six pack of alcohol consumed will lead to overall less health of the population. Alcohol definitely carries a heavy health burden for our societies. And it's a society question because how much of a burden does society want to carry? So from a health perspective, there's a lot of money that goes on into treating those individuals and managing those diseases, but just as a society for loss of life and stuff. But then you get into, well, how much enjoyment and how much does it contribute to our current society? I agree with the authors. It's a conversation, right? Where do you set that limit? Right. And the advice that 
supposedly we can give that up till now we've been telling our patients is one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men is a quote unquote safe amount. And it looks like that's what they've been following too. Right. Totally. Now, usually it's not per day. It's like 14 on Saturday night (laughs) (laughs) divided by seven. (laughs) So I don't know if this could make me tell a patient. I probably wouldn't go as far as to say there's no safe amount of alcohol, but I think it's fair to say that certainly misuse is very harmful. Maybe moderation is not as safe as we thought it was. Bottom line. The safest amount of alcohol to consume is zero. Paper six. Abstract number six is the efficacy of a low FODMAP diet in irritable bowel syndrome. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis from GUT June 2022. We have lots of patients with irritable bowel syndrome and dietary changes is certainly one of the first things that we recommend to them. And so the question is, are dietary changes effective? And one of the diets that has been studied is a low FODMAP diet. FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And every time I look at the high FODMAP or low FODMAP diet, I have to relook at it anytime I look at it, uh, you know, a week later. It's very hard for me to understand. I'm guessing for the patients, it's hard to understand too. But let's try this. So high FODMAP foods, dairy, wheat-based products, beans, lentils, some vegetables, and some fruits, like apples and asparagus, are high FODMAP. Low FODMAP foods, eggs and meat, rice, quinoa, oats, some vegetables, some fruits, tomatoes, and strawberries are low. So the part that confuses me is like some vegetables are low and some vegetables are high and some fruits are low and some fruits are high. So this is one of the challenges of recommending this to your patients, but let's see if it even works. So the authors performed a network meta-analysis. They searched multiple databases to assess improvement in common IBS symptoms. So they did look at patient-oriented outcomes. The comparisons were sham dietary advice or other dietary advice like gradual food avoidance recommended by a British Dietitian Society and also the National Institutes for Clinical Excellence diet, which is like cutting out certain foods that could make your symptoms worse. So the results, again, we have a meta-analysis with lots of small studies, 13 studies, 944 patients. Most were short duration, three to four weeks. So that's a major flaw. Most of us would prefer our dietary symptoms improve for more than three to four weeks. There was a barely statistically significant improvement in global symptoms for low FODMAP and IBS relative risk of 0.67, but it almost crossed one. And when you look at subgroups of global symptoms like bloating, bowel habits, those were not statistically significant. And these studies were not at all based on a personalization of symptoms. So like, oh, I have wheat, my stomach feels worse. I should eat less wheat. So Ken, I would take the study with a very large grain of salt. Blinding's not possible. I think making some dietary changes is reasonable for an individual, but I don't think we can make any conclusions about recommendations for certain kind of diets over other certain kind of diets. Yeah, it's really hard to have an effective strategy when we really don't understand what causes IBS in the first place. And then you try to evaluate treatments when the outcomes are mainly subjective rather than objective outcomes. So there's a lot of fuzziness in there. And could eating healthy and exercise just be as effective 
with doing personalized diets. And that's what I usually recommend and say, hey, why don't you just keep track of how you're feeling and what you're eating? And if you can find a correlation with every time I eat wheat, like you said, or every time I eat this vegetable, or if I have an apple, I feel better and it keeps the doctor away. Sure, right? You know, do that and uh, just experiment with what works for you and what works for your gut. I think that empowers the patient and it doesn't sort of saying, oh, well, you know, you're on this FODMAP diet and you're still struggling. Clearly, you're not following it closely enough and it sets people up for failure. Yeah, I think it'd be reasonable to start with try dairy, try wheat, taking yeah. those out of your diet. And then like the beans and lentils, you know, the old like blazing saddles. Yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe try the maybe try cutting out the ones that that generally produce a lot of gas and try those four first maybe and see how it goes. Bottom line. A low FODMAP diet may or may not be worth trying in your patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Paper seven. Abstract number seven, comparative effects of pharmacological interventions for the acute and long-term management of insomnia disorders in adults, a systematic review, and network meta-analysis published in The Lancet 2022. So this is back to another paper using pharmaceutical interventions. The objective of this study was to determine the effectiveness of various pharmacological interventions to treat adults with both acute and long-term insomnia disorders. So these authors did a good job by registering their systematic review, and it was a network meta-analysis that they performed an exhaustive search. The population of interest was adults 18 years of age and older with insomnia disorder of some kind, and their primary outcomes was efficacy, discontinuation rate, and safety. And actually, I don't mind multiple primary outcomes when it's in, in sort of things like this, when you say, I've got a primary efficacy outcome, and then I want to look at safety, because those can be two primary different things. So I'm okay with that. Great. Now, as opposed to the other study, which had six trials that were included <laughs> and 440-ish patients, this had 154 double-blinded randomized control trials with over 44,000 patients. And they looked at 30 different interventions in the meta-analysis. And when they sliced and diced it all up, they found that esoplicone, or Lunesta, and Lemborexate, is that how you say it? Lemborexate? Works for me. Does that work for you? Or Davigo? They had the best potential benefit. However, the Lunesta might cause substantial adverse events and safety data on Davigo were inconclusive. There were many other approved drugs like benzodiazepines and trazodone, and they do have potential benefit in acute treatment, but they're associated with poor tolerability, and there's other issues with those types of drugs like benzodiazepines. And then they looked at things like melatonin and other non-licensed drugs, and they really didn't show an overall patient-oriented benefit. And Steve, we talked offline before we started this uh, show, but going through all the results of this network meta-analysis would have probably been a more effective treatment strategy for insomnia <laughs> than any of these drugs. So the next time I have a patient come in saying, Doc, I just can't sleep, I think I'm just going to hand them this. Because OMG. I thought about what sleep effect this would have on the poor people that did this study. 
a network meta-analysis of hundreds of thousands of patient data points. My gosh. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And we've already pointed out sort of the whole idea of GIGO this month. So any systematic review, the major limitation of a systematic review is it's limited by the quality of the included studies. The ingredients that go into the recipe are so important to that apple pie. An apple pie is wonderful, but you better have good ingredients or it's not a good apple pie. And so many of these studies had inadequate information on randomization and allocation concealment. A network meta-analysis has the additional limitation of not even comparing directly to interventions to each other with decreases the strength of any conclusions. And they use this thing called CINEMA, and CINEMA stands for Confidence in Network Meta-Analysis Framework. And they use cinema to quantify this issue of comparing. And the issue uh, and many comparisons were reported as either low or very low quality. So sometimes the best information you have to inform your clinical practice is not high quality. And that's what we just have to go with. So we don't have a lot of high quality data to go with on this issue of insomnia. And then very few of the studies were long-term studies. So most of us don't just want to treat our insomnia for a few weeks. And so for, you know, most of us are probably not using medications as our first line choice for treating insomnia. And this extremely complicated article will probably not change my practice in that way. Bottom line. There is a lack of good evidence to inform clinicians on which is the best drug to treat insomnia. And practitioners will need to rely more on their clinical judgment and patient preferences in making these treatment decisions. Paper 8. Abstract number 8 is the effect of pharmacogenomic testing for drug gene interactions on medication selection and remission of symptoms in major depressive disorder from JAMA, July 2022. So there's lots of attention paid to this concept of so-called personalized medicine or pharmacogenomics testing to assess a patient's ability to metabolize medicines. And therefore, that might affect the how effective a medicine is. And the first drug treatment that they tried with this was warfarin and the metabolism of warfarin and personalized dosing. And this has actually been studied in detail with underwhelming results with really no improvement in outcomes or lessening of harms. We didn't have anything on that in the database, so I put a link to a a recent article in the show notes if you're interested in that. So the next area that we're seeing this, this kind of concept emerge is in the treatment of depression. And it kind of makes sense because a lot of our patients don't respond well to antidepressants. Remission rates are really pretty low, like only about 30% with initial treatment. And so these authors conducted a study at 22 VA hospitals in the U.S. with almost 2,000 patients, and one group of patients were randomized to pharmacogenomic testing, and the information about how to use this testing was given to the doctors, and the other patients received usual care. The testing was a commercial product that provided four pharmacodynamic gene variants and eight pharmacokinetic gene variants. So they didn't just pick one. There's a whole bunch of them mixed in in this, you know, like commercial product. The raters were blinded. So the people that saw how the the people did later, the outcomes, but doctors and patients were not blinded. 
So this could definitely be a placebo type effect where the doctor's like, oh, we're using this fancy test. So you're definitely going to get better. And the patient will be like, well, yeah, they had this fancy test. So I'm probably going to get better. And despite that probably fundamental flaw, the results were pretty underwhelming. So one of the outcomes was, does this make doctors prescribe differently? And the answer is yes. So if you tell me I'm not supposed to prescribe this certain drug because of a medication effect, then I, I probably won't. The remission difference is fairly underwhelming. At 12 weeks, 16.5% with the pharmacogenomic testing, 11% without number needed to treat, 19, and no difference at 24 weeks. If you look at a 50% decrease in the PHQ-9, which is also a good patient-oriented outcome, number needed to treat 16 at 12 weeks, but then weirdly no difference at 18 weeks, and then again a statistical difference at 24 weeks. So it's suspicious for being sort of like a little random if there's not totally like a time dose effect. And the authors say that their findings are similar to that seen in a 2019 in the guided trial, which I'll also put a link to in the show notes, which shows a similar small impact on remission. And that study was actually better because the patients were blinded in that guided trial, but the effect is pretty similar. And, you know, it's really hard to get patients with depression into remission. It's hard to decrease the symptoms. Like I said, I think lack of blinding is a study's fatal flaw. This is not enough data for me that adding pharmacogenomics testing will improve things. In fact, it's probably the opposite. It's enough data to say it probably won't very much. I would really prefer to spend more effort providing multidisciplinary care for patients with depression working on lifestyle changes. There's no discussion in here in the inclusion of counseling, which I thought was odd. They didn't talk about guided meditation, exercise, and the results might not be generalizable to a non-VA population. Well, buckle up, PCMA listeners, because I'm about to head down a conspiracy rabbit hole. Here we go. <laughs> here's, my, here's my thing. You know, I, they had almost 700 clinicians who treated 1,900 patients. You had 700 clinicians involved, so they each had less than three patients enrolled. So when I see stuff like that, when the clinician to participant ratio is in that sort of balance, I start suspecting this is more about marketing to 700 clinicians about your fancy licensed product than it is about science itself. And so my skeptical radar was like, <laughs> here's some of the other problems. Co-primary outcome. And we know when it comes to primary outcome, there can be only one primary outcome. or Primary outcome? I do not think of that word means what you think it means. It means one. Unblinded patients and clinicians, which you already identified as a potential bias for a placebo effect. The subjective outcome measure is a depression scale. They lost 21% to follow-up. And then it was supported by this genetic testing company and the authors had loads of financial conflicts of interest with various pharmaceutical companies. So yeah, I'm skeptical. Bottom line. A flawed study shows that pharmacogenomics testing does change doctor behavior in patients with depression, but has minimal to no impact on depression improvement. Paper 9. Abstract number 9. Guideline review. 
evaluation of evidence supporting nice recommendations, to change people's lifestyle and clinical practice, a cross-sectional survey in BMJ Medicine 2022. And so here we are, I've been vacillating, going back and forth between pharmacologic therapies and non-pharmacologic therapies. So this is back to non-pharma therapies. And the objective of this study was to determine the evidence used to support the NICE guidelines, recommendations for individual-oriented lifestyle interventions. So they found 57 guidelines that contained 379 recommendations for individually-oriented lifestyle interventions. 99% of these recommendations were in favor of the lifestyle recommendation, so it wasn't against it. It was 99% in favor of doing that recommendation. Here's some sobering statistics, though. 3% had moderate to high certainty evidence of beneficial effect on a patient-oriented outcome. 3%. That means 97% didn't. 2% had it for surrogate outcomes. 5% of the interventions, 5% of the interventions, even considered psychosocial harms to these recommendations. 8% considered physical harm, so that means, again, 80, uh, 92% didn't even consider physical harms, less than 1%, and how they get that statistic, one out of 379 recommendations considered opportunity cost of implementation, and that nice round number showed up again, that's right, zero considered the burden placed on the individual by the recommendation. So not very patient-oriented. Now, before I get too into sort of some of my editorial comments, though, a distinction needs to be made between community interventions like, hey, we're going to ban indoor smoking, okay? That's a a community public health sort of intervention. Or as a community, we're going to build more bike and walking paths to encourage our population to use these things for transportation and for the environment and for our health and wellness, as opposed to these were individual strategies. So there's a distinction between a community or population-based strategy and an individual strategy. And there's, I don't think there's a dispute that healthy lifestyle and habits tend to improve people's health. So not smoking, moderate exercise, eating a healthy diet. These are good things. But the debate around the effectiveness of the efficacy for various individual interventions, that's where this comes down on, is do we have a strategy that works that can help people not smoke, moderate exercise, healthy diet, those things? And the lack of high quality or moderate to high quality certainty evidence, there's only 3%, fits with what we see in other areas of medicine. So when we look at the emergency medicine literature, how much of the data for what we do in interventions has high quality data, again, it came out to 3%. 97% of the stuff we do doesn't have high quality evidence. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means we don't have high quality evidence that it does. And then you, you pull back and say, hey, how about other recommendations like the AHA recommendations? Their level A recommendations, their top line recommendations, only 9%, 9%. So not a lot. It was also not a surprise that very few recommendations consider harm because we know that harm is systematically underreported in studies and trials. And, um, you know, they didn't consider the physical or psychosocial harms. 
or even the cost of the implementation of the recommendation. Yeah, we're if we're not careful, we're going to be accused of being nihilists here, Ken. I, you know, it's not my first time I've been accused of that. <laughs> nothing works. And so I think this is not saying that nothing works. It's more like we don't know. And especially for some of the We don't know what does work, right? right. And, that, and that's, that's the distinction I was trying to make. Yeah. And even though you don't have high quality evidence that something does work, you can't claim that it doesn't work. That's not what has been proved. It's just, I look at this as, I'm an optimistic skeptic. I think this is a, a real encouragement for doing better research. Not more research, better research, asking the right questions and using the right methodologies to answer the questions. And then we'll have the answers that we're looking for, as opposed to we do tons and tons of these studies, you know, that one study, you know, 44,000 participants in the systematic review. And you go, yeah, we, we ended up not knowing much. Right. We, we're spinning our wheels. The yoga migraine was a perfect example of this. It's like, yes, it's a lifestyle intervention and uh, the studies weren't done well enough to know if it works. So we don't know if yoga helps for migraines or not. So multiply that times 100 or 300, all these different lifestyle interventions, and that's where we are. Yeah, and it'd be really good if, if somebody was going to propose a study that it went through some methodologist, as well as ethics. Of course, you know, I'm all in favor of getting ethics approval, but why can't we have some bar that has to be passed for saying, listen, you know, you're spending research dollars, you're taking clinicians' time, and most importantly, you're taking patients' time, and you're not going to get the answer. Yeah. So why do it? Like, why not, you know, we're always talking about, oh, we don't have enough money and research is underfunded. Well, maybe if we're not doing all this stuff that doesn't really answer the questions we, we as in clinicians, and we as patients, because we're also patients as clinicians, you know, we all have our own health to worry about. Let's answer the questions by having the right methodology. Bottom line. We should encourage healthy lifestyles while recognizing there's a lack of high quality evidence to support which strategies are most effective on an individual basis. Paper 10. Abstract number 10 is the Cholesterol Treatment Trialist Collaboration, Effective Statin Therapy on Muscle Symptoms, an Individual Participant Data Meta-Analysis of Large-Scale Randomized Double-Blind Trials. This is from Lancet, September 2022. We have a heavy dose of large meta-analyses on, on this episode. We've talked about this on PCMA before. Sometimes we stop statin therapy on our patients because of muscle symptoms. About two years ago, April 2021, we talked about ways to improve statin adherence. And these are all weak evidence, but things like um, intensifying the patient care, like weekly phone calls from the pharmacist, reminders, considering azetamibe, or uh, combining like red rice yeast with a low-dose statin, you can switch to non-daily dosing. And we talked actually a couple of years ago about rechallenging because 90% of patients will be able to take a statin if you re-challenge them. And remember that, as we've talked about on here before, statins for primary prevention are somewhat underwhelming. So you really should mostly think about this in the context of patients with known atherosclerotic disease, so secondary prevention. This study questions even how strongly connected statins are to muscle symptoms at all. It's from about the biggest statin randomized control trial database that you could possibly imagine. They looked at individual participant data meta-analysis of 
all recorded adverse muscle events in large, long-term, randomized, double-blind trials of statin therapy. Trials had to have at least 1,000 patients. They had to treat patients for at least two years. They had to have double-blind placebo versus statin or high-dose versus low-dose statin, and they analyzed over 150,000 data points from individual participants. The results, after an average follow-up of 4.3 years, 27.1% of patients taking statins had muscle pain versus 26.6% of patients not taking statins for an absolute increase of 11 events per thousand person years. That's year one. So in one year, 11 events in a thousand people. And only one in 15 complaints of muscle pain are actually due to the statin. After year one, there's no significant excess in reports of muscle pain or weakness. There is a small increase in high-dose versus low-dose statin. Sometimes we talk about, what about the CK level? Statin therapy increases the median creatinine kinase 0.02 times the upper limit of normal, so basically nothing. And switching statins doesn't seem to help. So... If a statin is going to help with the cardiovascular risk, stick with it. Part of our job may just be to help a patient continue taking their statin. And if it's not working, make sure the patient really needs it. And then there are some other strategies that you can try. Yeah, I think it, like many things, it comes down to the balance of the potential benefit versus the potential harms. And, you know, this is one of the cases where I think the potential harms of myalgias or muscle aches or all those types of things have been exaggerated with regards to statins. I really do. But so has the potential benefit been exaggerated. And so I like what you said where you've really got to focus in and here we are. I don't need, you know, some kind of pharmacogenetic uh, gene testing risk stratification. I just need to sit down and talk to the patient and say, okay, let's look at your cardiovascular risks and, you know, is this primary or secondary prevention? And what, what are the potential harms and are you going to be okay with this and then move forward? And so it is, and I, you know, this is where the hair on the back of my neck gets up. I think we're already practicing individual patient medicine or precision medicine by doing something that I know might be considered a little extreme, but talking to your patients, <laughs> doing an appropriate physical exam, and then deciding where to go. Bottom line. Most muscle pain on patients with statin therapy is not due to the statin therapy. Well, there you go. There's your 10 papers for February. I sort of skated along the nihilism. Steve brought his sunny, rosy picture of things. And and if you're having trouble sleeping, we've got a paper for you. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. sum this all up. Summary. And now it's time for the summary. And as usual, we're going to kick it off with PCMA. And I'm up first with Ken's paper, paper number one. PCMA, article one. Trizepatide once weekly for the treatment of obesity in the New England Journal of Medicine 2022. This industry-funded multinational and multi-site study looked at the effectiveness of a GLP-1 terzepatide compared to placebo for weight loss 
and found that this medication did pretty well. NNTs of two or three sound good to me. Yes, there are some GI side effects to be aware of, and yes, it was an industry-funded study, and it is early days yet for this indication of the medication, but I count myself equally intrigued by the potential here. So stay tuned for more on this one, I am sure. Paper number two, Prevalence and Characteristics of Adrenal Tumors in an Unselected Screening Population, a cross-sectional study in the Annals of Internal Medicine 2022. We all dread seeing incidentalomas turn up on scan reports, and it's somewhat concerning that the rates of adrenal incidentalomas have increased tenfold in 20 years. This study was pretty unique in that it was a large cross-sectional study from China of people who opted to have a CT scan at an annual health check. They found that overall the rate of incidental adrenal tumours was 1.4%, but none were malignant and they were mostly not hormonally significant. There was a substantial chunk of patients who weren't followed up, so we have some gaps in the data that make it hard to draw conclusions. But the data we do have is pretty reassuring that those incidental findings on scan aren't likely to be significant from a malignant or endocrine perspective. Paper number three, Effectiveness of Yoga Therapy for Migraine, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Studies in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2022. This was a small meta-analysis that only looked at six studies with a total of 445 people but it seemed to show that there could be some positive effects of yoga therapy for migraine sufferers. There were some issues with the methodologies of the included studies, but there also seems to be maybe little downside to have something to suggest to patients who do have this painful migraineous condition. Paper number four, contraceptive efficacy and safety of the 52 milligram levonorgestrel intrauterine system for up to eight years, bindings from the Marina Extension Trial in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, 2022. This is definitely my favourite paper of the day about my favourite drug, the Mirena or Levonogestrel IUD. In August 2021, the FDA approved the Mirena IUD for seven years of use, up from five years, which was the original approval, and then a year later, in August 2022, approved it for eight years. It seems that the data keeps showing ongoing efficacy for contraception the longer they keep extending the trial. It also maintains its benefits for heavy bleeding, and there was still 99% patient satisfaction. I wonder if they'll keep going up every year. We'll have to wait and see. Paper number five, Alcohol Use and Burden for 195 Countries and Territories, 1990 to 2016, a systematic analysis for the Global Burden of Disease Study 2016 in The Lancet 2018. That's a lot of dates there. Now, even though this paper is a bit older than our usual ones here on PCMA, it offered some interesting insights into the degree to which alcohol can have a deleterious impact on society and can significantly increase the disease burden for our populations. In younger adults, its use contributes to increased deaths, associated with, interestingly, tuberculosis, self-harm, and road accidents, whereas in older adults, the link seems to be more with higher rates of cancer. We could perhaps use this information to help our patients make informed choices regarding their alcohol use. Paper number six. Efficacy of a low FODMAP diet in irritable bowel syndrome a systematic review and network meta-analysis in GUT 2022. This was a network meta-analysis to see if low FODMAP diet improves IBS symptoms compared to sham advice or other types of dietary elimination advice. Studies were mostly short duration of three to four weeks, which makes it a bit flawed to draw long-term conclusions. There was a barely statistically significant difference in global symptoms and no difference in subgroups of symptoms. We can't really make any conclusions for any particular dietary recommendations based on this paper. Paper 7. Comparative Effects of Pharmacological Interventions for the Acute and Long-Term Management of Insomnia Disorder in Adults, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis in The Lancet 2022. 
This was a registered systematic review done with an exhaustive search, and they got a whole whack of patients from 154 trials with over 44,000 patients. That was great, but there was a wide variability in trial quality and examined outcomes, so the actual evidence for one medication versus the other isn't really there. So again, we're still chatting with our patients and figuring out what might work best for them. Paper number eight, effect of pharmacogenomic testing for drug gene interactions on medication selection and remission of symptoms in major depressive disorder. The Prime Care Randomized Clinical Trial in JAMA 2022. Depression is such a common problem we see and symptom remission rates are around 30% with standard care. But can pharmacogenomic testing improve our prescribing choices? In this study, doctors were given information about several different pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic genetic testing options. As you would expect, this did indeed lead to doctors changing their prescribing habits. Unfortunately, that didn't translate into a meaningful difference in treatment outcomes. There was a small benefit for symptom remission at 12 weeks, but this effect had disappeared by 24 weeks of treatment. Based on this data, there probably isn't enough benefit to recommend it. Paper 9, Evaluation of Evidence Supporting the NICE Recommendations to Change People's Lifestyle and Clinical Practice, a cross-sectional survey published in the BMJ 2022. This study was trying to determine the quality of evidence that was used in creating the NICE recommendations. And it turns out that 97% of the studies came out in favor of the recommendations, but only 3% of those were actually based on high-quality evidence. So again, this is a bit frustrating. I feel like a lot of our papers this month are a little bit frustrating because it comes back down to common sense helping us here to say that healthy lifestyle recommendations are a good idea. Paper number 10. Effect of statin therapy on muscle symptoms. An individual participant data meta-analysis of large-scale randomized double-blind trials in The Lancet 2022. Sometimes we stop statin therapy because patients report muscle symptoms. But should we be doing that? This meta-analysis looked at a massive database with over 150,000 data points. They found that after an average of 4.3 years, 27.1% of people on statins had muscle pain versus 26.6% who weren't taking statins. Hmm. Most muscle symptoms in statin takers are not actually due to the statins. So before rushing to stop the meds, we need to carefully consider the potential benefits as well as the harms to the individual patient and particularly when we're talking about secondary prevention of serious diseases like heart attack and stroke. All right, so that was PCMA for the month, a plethora of papers that left me kind of wanting more, well, wanting more studies that were done well as opposed to more studies necessarily. But let's move on to the rest of the show. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. So Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Preventing the Common Cold. We all know and appreciate that patients really want to avoid the common cold. But what should we say when they ask us what they can actually do to prevent a cold? Heidi and Hobie have a look at the evidence behind vitamin C, echinacea, and zinc in this month's piece. What I was most interested in here was the discovery that zinc seemed to be a pretty good treatment for a common cold, even if zinc and the others didn't really work to prevent the cold. The Generalist. In The Generalist, you and Jake talked about suprapubic catheter. And this piece was all about demystifying the insertion of the suprapubic catheter, and you talked about the indications for the procedure and then walked us through the whole process. It sounds like a scary procedure, but really, as with so many things, the scariest part is just deciding to do it. Remember to get consent, treat for pain and anxiety, and have a helper or two at the bedside if you can. Cannabis cessation. 
on The Office this month. We talked about cannabis cessation. And this was a really great chat between Brandon Grove and Heidi about how we can help our patients who are struggling with cannabis cessation. They touched briefly on the issue of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which I think we're all seeing more and more of these days. But what I really liked here was the focus on treatment options that we might try when a patient wants to quit. And when I say the treatment options, there haven't been a ton of good studies on these topics yet, but stay tuned, they're surely coming. Varenicline and naltrexone might be good, and who knows, maybe even ketamine. The most important thing we have to do right off the bat, though, is to ask our patients about their cannabis use because you're likely going to be surprised by how many of your patients are actually using these agents as more and more of these become legalized around the world. Lower back pain. Also in the office, we had a section on lower back pain. Heidi and Andrew had an informative, but honestly pretty demoralizing deep dive into the evidence around treatment for acute and chronic low back pain. What I took away is that almost everything we prescribe is kind of useless, although NSAIDs can be helpful in acute back pain. For chronic back pain, the best thing is exercise. If only we could prescribe it in pill form to give us something to do with our script pads. Kids do the strangest things. (laughs) Then in urgent care, we talked about paediatric limp. Now, this was an awesome chat between Gita Penser and Chris Merritt on something we see all the time, namely the limping child. This piece gives us a great overview of things we need to suspect and when, and also some really good reminders that a complete physical exam is crucial. Another pearl I loved, check the fit of the kids' shoes. Such straightforward and practical advice. I love it. Yes, check their shoes and check their feet, because maybe they've just got a cut. Rural Medicine Talks. Now, wrapping it up this month on rural medicine, this was a case from Chiprock Hospital in the Indian Health Services, and to describe the case, I was joined by Dr. Lewis Yu. It was a case of pediatric metahemoglobinemia, He picked up on the diagnosis pretty quickly, but finding the antidote was not so easy, so he also gives a good rundown of the approach to this problem, some of the pitfalls in diagnosing it, and also some ideas of what to do if you can't find that methylene blue. So that's it. February 2023, Right on Prime, is done and dusted for the month. Of course, we have so many other products in the MRAP universe that you can check out. There's MRAP itself, there's EMA, there's Urgent Care, there are Fundamentals course, ECG courses, and our online textbook. So many things to do, as if you have the time to do all of this. But in the meantime, I wanted to thank you, Penny, for joining us. And of course, to everyone out there, keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. matters.